listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Breaking news, someone just tried to apply a coat of paint on the new leader of the Labour Party. Birds were nesting in his uxorious head. That's right, block of wood, Sir Keir Starmer gets the gig and his new shadow cabinet already looks like a return of the Blairites. The zombies from the Blair years that have been sleeping in the backbenches but with their knives in their hands, stabbing their own leader in the back, are now on the front bench. And one or two new Blairites that sadly never got the chance to vote for the invasion and occupation of Iraq and the murder of a million people. How they regret it. Where will they attack next? The big palooka, Keir Starmer, will loom large in the show this evening. And talking about big palookas, where's Joe Biden hiding out in a basement in God knows where, Delaware, perhaps, although that's just a company headquarters, isn't it? Anyway, he cannot, it now transpires, even say his own name, President Obama's name, the coronavirus's name, without the aid of an earpiece in his ear, and Frankly, not very well, even with that. We'll be talking to Caleb Mopan about what's happening in the US Democrats. And of course, we'll be talking about the grim reaper of the coronavirus cutting a swathe amongst our people, young and old, healthy and unhealthy, and rich and poor. It's a radio show with pictures. I think you're going to enjoy it, but it'll be a bumpy ride, so Fasten your seatbelts. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're on FM in the Washington, D.C. area, 105.5 FM are the magic numbers there. And on AM across the United States from coast to coast. But as I say, this is a radio show with pictures and many of you may be most of you, well over half a million of you last week were watching as well as listening. And if you're watching on my Facebook page or on RT's multiple Facebook accounts, make sure you share, share and share again with all your friends on Facebook because we got to get back up to that magic number of one million. If we get back up to one million, they'll no doubt Give us a second show in the week and you won't have to wait so long for moats to come around. You can also watch, of course, on my YouTube channel and on the YouTube channels belonging to RT. You can even watch on Twitter. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at George Galloway, and follow us 
on Twitter, at MoatsTV. Uh, but you can also, hi, you can also now follow us on Instagram and a surprisingly large number of people are doing so. Nearer to normal service restored this week. We're still missing a vital cog in our machine, our director, and we wish him a speedy return, not just to full health, but to his place here on the mother of all talk shows. I've even got my cup and my cup of tea. We'll be talking about British politics, American politics, and world politics in the midst of a pandemic. Not just the nuts and bolts of who's dying where, at what rate, but what all this means for how we got here and where we're likely to go after this is over. And I think that is a big and fascinating subject indeed. But let's start with the British political scene. I'm only half joking when I say that birds are already trying to nest in Sir Keir Starmer, the multi-millionaire, former public prosecutor, Queen's Counsel, a North London anti-Brexit man who has now been elected by a landslide as the new leader of the Labour Party. The first thing I need to say is, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. I told you that not allowing Ian Lavery or Richard Bergen to run for leader of the Labour Party was a disastrous error. I told you that putting up a schoolgirl, Rebecca Long Bailey, as the single left-wing candidate was a mistake of gargantuan proportions. I told you that if Keir Starmer got it, it would be the return of Tony Blair. This is Tony Blair 2.0. If you look at the uh, shadow cabinet that is now emerging, I'll be getting the names, I hope, put on my desk in the course of the show. But if I just glance at the top line of who has been kicked out and who has been promoted, I can certainly say one thing. And that is that Keir Starmer is more decisive as a leader than Jeremy Corbyn ever was, unfortunately, in the reverse direction. Jeremy Corbyn didn't purge anybody, even when they were sticking knives in his back. Instead of purging them, he promoted them. Jeremy Corbyn never booted anybody out. He promoted the people who hated him most. In fact, the people he booted out were his actual friends, his closest allies, uh, people like Chris Williamson, the erstwhile member of parliament for Derby. No chance whatsoever of Keir Starmer making that mistake. He's following the John McTernan rules of punishing the loser. At the time of my coming on set, I've no idea if Rebecca Long-Bailey is going to be given anything at all in the shadow cabinet, but if she is, it's already clear it's going to be vanishingly, humiliatingly small beer. John Landsman, her campaign manager, and the luxury communists have already prostrated themselves at the feet of Sir Kia. Arise, they say, Sir Kia. Even NATO Trotskyite Paul Mason and uh, pirouetting Nureyev, Owen Jones have slavishly adhered themselves to Sir Keir Starmer's backside. Question is, where is it headed? 
Is Keir Starmer capable of leading Labour back to power? That's in fact the context of our first poll. Will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A. Yes. B. No. I believe absolutely no and for the following reasons. First of all, Sir Keir Starmer is a man who doesn't even speak the language of the millions of working class people who abandoned Labour on the Red Wall and behind the Red Wall, but also here in London. He doesn't even speak their language. He doesn't pretend to understand what they are talking about. He is a smug, cosmopolitan, upper class, exceedingly rich, fabulously educated elitist. He has nothing in common with the people that Labour need to win back. Secondly, he is literally the architect of the very policy which caused Labour's defenestration just last December. He is the man who insisted upon, more than anyone else, a people's vote, a second referendum, to force the 17.4 million Brexiteers to do it all again, no doubt in the teeth of a state-sponsored, billionaire-financed propaganda campaign in the hope that they would vote a different way the second time. Such contempt for democracy, such contempt for the decent patriotic views of millions of people in this country renders him useless in actually winning people back. He'll no doubt be popular amongst the Guardianistas. Indeed, the Guardian's already wetting itself with delight at this new era. So is Tony Blair, so is Margaret Hodge, so is Wes Streeting, so is Jess Phillips, all the Chamber of Horrors who made Corbyn's life such a misery for the last four and a half years. Uh, their knees are knocking together with delight at the idea that Starmer has won so handsomely with 57% of the vote. Rebecca Long-Bailey limping in in second with 27% of the vote. Yes, that's right. What a pick. What a pick by Landsman, by Momentum, by the left. And I'm not being wise after the event. I told them and I told you over and over again in real time this would happen. Just as I predicted the result of the general election, just as I predicted the result of the Brexit referendum, of Trump's election and so on. I'm glad you're listening. We need to get more people to pay more attention. Now, talking of big palookas, what about Joe Biden? Have you ever seen anything more pitiful? He can scarcely say his name into the basement television camera that he's got rigged up in his isolation. He's demanding that the people in various states on Tuesday come out and vote in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic when they're not supposed to be within two meters of each other. He wants them to stand in a line, thousands long, in order to vote for him. Uh, but he also says that the Democrats will have to have a virtual convention 
just to save the problem of inconvenient uprisings amongst the Bernie Sanders supporters on the floor of the convention. I'll go out on a limb. I'm predicting that Joe Biden will not be the Democratic Party's candidate in November. He's not fit to be let out alone. Certainly not fit to be left babysitting your daughter, if you get my drift. He's not fit to fight Donald Trump. So at the last minute, there'll be a stand-in. Now, there are many possibilities. One of them is Hillary Clinton, but that's probably a bridge too far, a risk too far. Another, one that I identified earlier on, is the wife of President Obama, who does seem to have a good deal of popularity in the uh, United States. Michelle Obama might be appointed as the vice presidential running mate of Joe Biden, then Joe Biden's unable to actually go to the gig, and so she is elevated uh, with someone else as VP. And these are possibilities. But I'm increasingly thinking, as I said last week, that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who's on television every single day and is doing a pretty impressive job at least presentationally, of making his case for more resources, of condemning the federal government, and of fighting for the people of New York, which is, of course, the center, the epicenter of the American uh, epidemic, which is the epicenter now of the world pandemic. The United States may very well, in a couple of weeks, have a higher level of unemployment 25% as they had in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Soup kitchens, tent cities, dust bowls, all the horrors of the Great Depression may well be back in the United States very, very soon indeed. In other words, there never was a better time for a radical candidate with authenticity and with a track record for decades of fighting for the kind of changes that America is going to need, an FDR plus New Deal, there's never been a better time for Bernie Sanders. But the Democrats would rather Donald Trump won than that Bernie Sanders should be their nominee. Does that sound familiar? Because of course the same is true here in Britain. There's never, ever, ever been a better time for Jeremy Corbyn to lead the Labour Party with a radical program and a coruscating critique of Boris Johnson who's looking ever more inept, bumbling, pitifully out of his depth. There's never been a better time for a radical Labour leader. So Labour chose a block of wood. We'll be talking, of course, about the coronavirus itself, what it's doing, and the world it's going to leave us. I myself am beginning to think that this is an epochal turn, that there will it will never be the same again after this. I know that can sound trite. It can sound also a trifle optimistic. But here's why I think so. Capitalism is actually the virus. If you think about it, what does the virus do? It parasitically attaches itself 
to the work being done by others. In this case, by your lungs and by your throat, your trachea, your ability to breathe, to keep a living organism alive. The parasite fixes itself to your cells and seeks to squeeze the life out of them. And it can only uh, be a matter of time, I think it's days, it might be hours, before that parasite is spitting out and infecting others to go on and to exploit still more. The parasite, the virus, knows no borders and will not accept any democratic check upon its workings, its evil doings. The parasite, the virus, has only one purpose, to parasite some more and to continue to destroy as it goes along. And I think a lot of people are at least open to, and many, many millions have already concluded, that it was globalized capitalism with its long lines of supply, its austerity politics which broke disastrously our public services, not just, by the way, our health service, though, of course, that's the most obvious frontline casualty of globalized capitalism's determined, de uh, 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 determination to destroy all that is public and to make profit from anything it can get its hands on, including much-loved public services. But it isn't just the health service. Five London bus drivers have died. Why? Because the London mayor is allowing people to pack onto a restricted number of buses unhealthily, all of them breathing their droplets at the driver of the bus who doesn't even have a mask, not even a tiny little cloth mask like this. The driver is naked, metaphorically, in the front of the bus. There are fewer buses, so more people are on them. And five London bus drivers have lost their lives in the coronavirus epidemic so far. And I've no doubt, I know from one of my friends, John Larkin, uh, that on Merseyside there are critical problems of safety uh, in the public transport uh, uh, industry with the lack, total lack, I mean, lack's not the word, the total absence of personal protective equipment. They are more interested in a different kind of PPE, the kind studied by virtually all of the top line of Sir Keir Starmer's new shadow cabinet. But it isn't also just bus drivers. Let me let you in, I hope she doesn't mind, on uh, a personal secret. My mother, aged almost 85, has uh, help come in, supplied by the NHS and by the, uh, the care uh, departments in, uh, in Scotland. Uh, they're very, very nice. One can't do enough for her. One is a nurse who helps her with various uh, ailments that an 85-year-old almost routinely has, helps her on with her stockings and so on, uh, and the others come and do a bit of cleaning. But my mother's just cancelled them. 
Yes, these wonderful ladies that come in to help her, she's told them, don't come, please, until after this emergency is over. Why? Because not a single one of the social care staff visiting my mother has as much as a rubber glove, has as much as a wee cloth mask to put on their face, or has been tested to see if they're taking the coronavirus round all the old people whose houses they are visiting and to whom they are attending most religiously. Now, only capitalism could produce a society like that. Atomized, devastated, privatized, where all that is public is profaned and all that is solid is not just melting into air, but being sold off in front of your very eyes. I'll have more to say that on that when I come to nominate my candidate for the wall of shame later in this show. Okay, poll number one. Will Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A, yes, 18%. My God, who are you? B, no, 83%. Vote now on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. I'll be right back. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Now we are joined by Skype, I hope, uh, by my favorite American writer, broadcaster, analyst, and activist for that matter, Caleb Mopan. Follow him on Twitter, by the way, if you haven't done so already. He puts out some wonderful wonderful stuff. Caleb, welcome back uh, to sure. the mother of all talk shows. Let's start, can we, uh, with the situation in New York. Uh, it seems like absolute hell on earth. Is it as bad as that? Well, I'm staying indoors. I'm talking to you from Brooklyn, which is the, you know, the, the, the epicenter here in New York City of, of the crisis. Uh, you know, at least 3,000 people have died already. We understand that the U.S. military uh, is on site, um, that, that uh, there has been tents set up in Central Park. Um, we now have an order from Mayor Bill de Blasio that if at any point we go outside, we must wear masks. 
But one thing we've seen in the reports is that some people are being pretty badly hit. Those who are working in the grocery stores, those who are working in the laundries around the city, uh, the people that are performing these essential services that are going to work, they're the ones that are being the overwhelming majority of those who are tested. Emergency services workers who can't take off, who need to come in certain places in times of emergency, they're also being pretty badly hit. So while the virus doesn't discriminate, it seems to have a bit of an economic bias. Uh, working people are being hit uh, by this, this disastrous uh, the pandemic, and they're being hit in disproportionate numbers. A lot of wealthier folks, they stay indoors, maybe they've gone upstate. Uh, but, uh, but here in New York City, it's working families that are being hit the hardest by this, folks that do essential services that can't be turned off. Now, you are not, uh, as is obvious from a glance at your output, a shill for Bill Gates or George Soros. Neither are you involved in any great conspiracy to take away the liberties of the American people. Uh, you are not seeking a controlled demolition of capitalism of one kind so that you can uh, rebuild it in a different way. Why do you think so many people, including many with whom we've traveled on various issues, uh, people that we thought were allies. Why do you think there are so many of these people endlessly spouting this conspiracy theory nonsense? Well, I like to talk about a light switch effect. In the United States, uh, the way discourse has been set up, uh, basically you have two choices. On the one hand, you can blindly believe whatever the U.S. government says, whether it's about domestic issues and homeland security, or whether it's about uh, international issues, whether it be Syria or Venezuela or Iran or whatnot, you can blindly believe whatever they say, or uh, you get put in this other category where they put you in the category of those who believe that UFOs and space aliens are responsible for the problems of the world or believe that the moon landing was a hoax or believe that uh, that all kinds of things happen. And, and we have this situation where we're basically uh, there is not room. There hasn't been room in American discourse for legitimate questioning of government officials um, and legitimate questions from the narrative are not tolerated. If you say, hey, I'm not sure about Syria, I'm not sure about what you're claiming about the use of chemical weapons in Syria, the response of mainstream media is, oh, there you go, right? Ah, uh, uh, you know, I, I bet you're going to tell us that, uh, that space aliens bombed the World, World Trade Center. And they mock you and they put you in this category where legitimate alternative media and legitimate questioning of our leaders uh, is not tolerated in mainstream discourse. So when people see the our leaders have lied and said things that are untrue, um, they immediately start to think everything is false, right? And that immediately after any big event happens in the United States, uh, the internet is just full of people claiming it was a hoax, claiming it was fake. Um, and it's really, really tragic. Uh, we have a situation where, uh, I mean, this is definitely real. You know, COVID-19 is not a hoax. I'm talking to you from the epicenter of the disaster. This is a really real and serious situation. But yet all over the internet, we have these delusional people claiming it's a hoax, claiming that, oh, it's not real. This is all staged to hurt Donald Trump and all of this. This is the result of this this atmosphere being created. When you don't allow people to question the narrative in a responsible way, uh, you get a situation where people are either true blind believers in the system 
or they're in this category where anything goes. And that is very, very dangerous. I would draw people's attention to Cass Sunstein. He worked in the Obama White House and he wrote a document about conspiracy theories. And he talked about the way to defeat, quote unquote, conspiracy theories was with what he referred to as cognitive infiltration and putting out false conspiracy theories to discredit conspiracy theories. I would draw people's attention to that. And it seems like by creating like an Joseph atmosphere Heller where wrote it. Yeah, uh, what's that? It sounds like Joseph Heller wrote that. Catch-22. Indeed. Indeed, and and they have created an atmosphere uh, where we're basically questioning, uh, questioning things legitimately, looking into whether or not our leaders are telling the truth or not, is, is described basically and put into the same category as lunacy. And that is so, so dangerous at a time where we should be listening to our government officials. We need true information to be out there in the middle of the pandemic. We need to be getting right information. And the fact that Trump continues to get up during this crisis and say things that afterwards we find out are inaccurate, this is a big mess. This is a big mess in terms of public relations and information in the United States, where we have a public who doesn't know what to believe, doesn't know the difference between legitimate questioning and lunacy. It's a mess. It's a complete mess in terms of media in the United States right now. No, uh, let me just run one of uh, Trump's uh, statements past you. Uh, even though I saw him say it, I saw his lips move, I heard his words, he's now saying that he never said it would be over in April when the heat comes. But I saw him say that. He has a limitless capacity to brazenly lie about what he himself has said and everyone has seen him and heard him say. But I'm going to go left field with you now, Caleb. I think that Trump's better instincts, his best instincts, are actually quite good. I think he's surrounded by all kinds of horrific people, not least Mike Pompeo. But when, for example, confronted with this disaster, he proposed the very policy the Democrats are rejecting of a single-payer health system, an actual health service for America, the Democrats attacked him for it. How's that for Joseph Heller, Catch-22? I mean, the whole situation is a complete disaster. Donald Trump got up and he said, this is the greatest economy in the entire history of the United States. It has never been this good. Well, that's all been blown to pieces. I mean, we're at the point where the unemployment uh, services and the unemployment claims are through the roof. They're just overwhelmed the U.S. Department of Labor. So many people have lost their jobs. Uh, the impact of this is going to be very, very longstanding. We just heard Governor Cuomo here in New York say that if we can get rapid testing, testing that's very rapid, we might be able to start having people that are not vulnerable go back to work. Um, but, but we have to develop rapid testing. But what blows my mind is despite the fact that Trump really doubled down on this hatred for China, Mike Pompeo also with this Wuhan flu and, and you know, China virus, et cetera, and just, just vicious, vicious demonization of China, escalation of sanctions against Iran, escalation of sanctions against Venezuela, that, that China has, is stepping up 
right? I mean, Chinese supplies have been flowing into New York City. Uh, they call it Project Airbridge. Masks are coming in on planes. Uh, thermometers are coming in. Uh, gloves are coming in on planes. Jack Ma is helping us to get ventilators. And despite the fact that our leaders in the United States uh, ramped up their viciousness and their regime change operations, uh, the leaders of China uh, have stepped up to help the people of the United States, despite uh, the malicious actions of our leaders in a time of crisis. It's real solidarity. And it's deeply moving to me as an American to see that in a time like this, China can see how vicious our leaders are and put that aside and on offer so much help. I mean, we need ventilators. I mean, we hear about Donald Trump invoking the Defense Production Act and forcing countries like uh, companies like General Electric and General Motors and different Ford and, and them to step up and start making ventilators. We need ventilators right now. I mean, people are dying at this point because they don't have access to proper care. And like you said, we don't have a real health care system in the United States. We have a mess of private insurance companies. We have some public hospitals. We have some private hospitals. We have people with medical debt for the rest of their lives. And when you face a pandemic like this, it becomes so apparent that free market solutions are not the answer to health care. I mean, we're, we're in this situation where the health of one is the health of all. If people, people, can't, uh, if people are ill, they could infect their neighbors. When illness exists in your society, when you don't have health in your society, it affects everyone, whether they can afford it or not. The health of one is the health of all. And we need to be depending on each other and we need to create some kind of healthcare safety net for Americans where people aren't afraid to go get tested because they'll get hit with a bill of thousands of dollars simply for doing the responsible thing and getting a test. I mean, this profit based healthcare system is being completely discredited by this disaster. Well, uh, 10 million workers in America are now uh, unemployed, uh, as you know better than me. Uh, so much of uh, healthcare plans are connected to your job. If you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. There's never been a better time to institute a proper single-payer hospital uh, health uh, service, has there? There's never been a Indeed. better time for Bernie Sanders' policy to be implemented. But Trump is more sympathetic to that, it seems, than Joe Biden is. Uh, and it's very bizarre. I mean, Trump has always been a wild card and he's always been unpredictable. We saw Joe Biden try to blame uh, national health care and government control of health care for the disaster in Italy and try to say, oh, that's because Italy has national health care, uh, that they're having such a hard time during the debates. That was Joe Biden's line of argument. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, Trump is an unpredictable guy. He said some things about student debt during his 2016 campaign that certainly didn't match uh, the conservative narrative. He's been very critical of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, however, from office, uh, his escalations with Iran, his escalations with Venezuela, his trade war with China seemed to show that he must have forgotten a lot of what he said on the campaign trail. Trump is very unpredictable. Um, uh, meanwhile, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, sits at the head of a mass movement of people in the United States that are tired of neoliberal economics and the, the policies that say greed is good and market solutions are always the answer. And that is the feeling among the rank and file Democratic Party. However, Joe Biden, I mean, this is a longtime uh, Democratic Party senator. 
Um, and they're, it's funny, they're showing us a lot of pictures of young Joe Biden when he was dashing. And of course, we've got the persona of Joe Biden in the Obama administration as the, the rough and tough working class guy who's elderly and gets into arguments with people. And now we see Joe Biden having a little difficulty even finishing his sentences and such. But people aren't talking about the middle-aged Joe Biden, the Joe Biden of the early 90s, the Joe Biden who loved crime bills and mass incarceration, the, the Joe Biden who went after Anita Hill when she when she talked about sexual harassment in Congress and was just vicious to her. And there is this this middle aged Joe Biden who was in there with DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, a lot like new labor, what you have over there that just pushed the Democratic Party in the most right wing, free market, neoliberal direction, uh, working with the Clinton family, Bill and Hillary, uh, to push the Democratic Party into a lock them up, wage wars, uh, privatized things, cut uh, social spending mode. And that's really how Joe Biden became Joe Biden. He was a centrist. He waged war on progressives in the Democratic Party. He is not what gets people to the polls. He's not what average Americans are excited to go out and vote for. He is run of the mill. So it's quite a situation. Now, we have seen Joe Biden speak up uh, for Captain Crazier uh, and, and call out the Navy. Uh, for the fact that the U.S. Navy, uh, you know, relieved of, of command this captain. Uh, this man who, who blew the whistle on the suffering of his own sailors uh, under the pandemic. Indeed. And so Joe Biden has stepped up. He said it was nearly criminal, the fact that they, they took out this Navy captain. So he is speaking out on that. Interesting, you know, he would know something about people getting kicked out of the Navy because his son, Hunter Biden, got kicked out of the Navy for using cocaine. So he knows he might have some longstanding criticism of the naval disciplinary policies. But regardless, uh, there's a lot of a lot of unrest beneath the surface. People are staying inside right now. Uh, Governor Cuomo is, is telling us that the deaths have slightly declined. So this is slightly a good sign. Perhaps this is the beginning of getting over the hill. But people are very, very nervous. Um, people are very nervous to go outside. Uh, people are very, very afraid of how long this could take. Um, people are indoors. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of things here in New York City are not going well. Immigrant communities have been very, very badly hit. Uh, you know, we hear stories of people being turned away uh, from the emergency room uh, because they're undocumented immigrants. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very scary. And throughout the country, gun sales are going through the roof. People are buying guns. And I will add, that the rich of the world, the richest of the rich, not just in the United States, but over in the UK and elsewhere, are buying up precious metals like you wouldn't believe. Gold is selling like crazy. Silver is selling like crazy. And the, the, the precious metal markets, uh, there's a huge, huge demand for precious metals right now. So all of this is a very, very bad sign. We got guns selling through the roof. We got precious metals. Jeff Bezos is doing well because everyone's at their home and they're having to order from Amazon. They can't go out. Uh, weird situation here, bad economy, bad fallout. Uh, people are worried about what's happening next. Now, finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, Caleb, uh, as you describe it, it sounds almost a, a revolutionary situation. Uh, if the United States very soon will have more people unemployed than it did in the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, and it has millions and millions of people with guns, it has racial stratification uh, in a way that mu is much more uh, marked than in the 1930s. That's a very dangerous uh, state of affairs. What's your theory as to where all this is headed? 
Well, you know, when someone is very inexperienced and doesn't know what they're doing, they will often make one mistake. And then when they realize it, they will overcorrect and make the opposite mistake. Uh, it's a very common pattern uh, when people don't know what they're doing. And there should have been a, a crackdown from day one. They should have immediately closed bars and restaurants. They should have immediately, uh, you know, had, had the city locked down. They didn't do it. Uh, there was a lot of lax enforcement. And my fear is that as things continue to get worse, if this continues to escalate, we'll see the opposite mistake. And there will be some kind of martial law that's very extreme and goes too far in the other direction. And a lot of people get hurt and a lot of liberties are taken away. And I fear it could, it could go way too far in an authoritarian direction because the potential for unrest is massive. We've seen burglaries on the rise here in New York City, a big increase in people breaking into these unopened businesses and taking things that's been happening in Florida and elsewhere. Uh, there's the potential for things to really spin out of control. And my fear is that if it looks like that could happen, we could get a crackdown that's far scarier than anything we anticipate from our officials in fear of things getting further out of control. Is there a possibility the November presidential election won't happen? I mean, it's possible. There's no constitutional mechanism for canceling the elections. Now, the Democratic National Convention has already been moved up a month. Um, the Republican convention, we don't know about, um, but it's very, very possible that some kind of national security situation could be declared. I mean, it's very possible things could get really, really intense here, but I don't know how that would be carried out. The U.S. Constitution does not create a provision. You have to have a presidential election every four years. So I don't know how that would, that would work under the Constitution. Caleb Maupin, as always, deeply grateful to you. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, now, uh, I do an, a short for the RT every week. I did it this week, as many weeks uh, passed, on the situation of the virus in the UK. Take a look at it. I'm not one of those who fixates about a police state or even civil liberties. First of all, because we have no actual civil liberties in this country at all, at least none that aren't cancelable by the stroke of a parliamentary pen, or even worse, a governmental pen. We have no constitution. We have no Bill of Rights. We have a set of norms which is easily cancelable in the right circumstances. And secondly, because I have more confidence in the police and the courts, for that matter, than that, I don't believe that they are in any way preparing to institute a tyranny or a dictatorship upon the British people. In any case, I'm for order. And if it is established as being in the public interest to keep social distancing, to keep in quarantine, as many people for as much of the time as is possible to try and bring this pandemic, if not to a halt, then at least to markedly slow it down, then I'm in favor of the police enforcing these measures. Having said all of that, the police actually have a responsibility to keep the public on side. And I hope that they are mindful of that. They should not seek to irritate the public beyond the level of irritation all of us are now feeling after several weeks in this highly unusual, maybe unprecedented 
situation. They really shouldn't be sending out drones over the moors to look out for solitary walkers or two walkers that might be less than two meters apart. They really shouldn't be injecting black ink into beauty spots, lakes, to make them less attractive for the odd day tripper. There are other things that the police ought to be paying more attention to, and one of those is Heathrow Airport, not far from where I'm speaking to you now, which is currently a throng with people, many of them flying into Britain from the hottest of hot spots of coronavirus pandemic activity. Absolutely no restrictions have been placed on people arriving, even from Wuhan in China, even from Lombardy in Italy, even from the dire streets of Madrid. There is criminal activity in the coronavirus business. There's the criminal act of leaving Britain virtually defenseless in the face of this pandemic, which is cutting through our people like a knife through butter. It's criminal that our nurses and doctors don't even have personal protection equipment to stop them from falling ill or even dropping dead whilst they're trying to keep the rest of us alive. It's criminal that we have no ventilators. On this day, we took delivery of precisely 10 ventilators at a time when other countries are achieving delivery of thousands. It's criminal that we had a whole industry of ventilator makers ready, willing, and experienced to provide those ventilators for us. But we gave the order to a vacuum cleaner manufacturer, a friend of the Conservative Party, a tax exile, Mr. Dyson, who's never made a ventilator in his puff and still hasn't delivered a single one. It's criminal that our National Health Service was allowed to rot, to wither on the vine over 40 years of neoliberal austerity and privatization. All of these things are crimes. I'm not saying the police should be going into Westminster and Whitehall and arresting them there, not yet anyway, but I do hope that the British people will remember this once it's all over. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Well, that was me earlier in the week, uh, of course, but the numbers haven't got any better. Uh, let's take a call from someone who disagrees with me on Starmer. Uh, it's from the Isle of Man, where, unfortunately, he won't get a chance to vote for him, if I'm not wrong. It's Jed. Jed, welcome. Hiya, George. You might remember me. I spoke to you in January, and I told you that Liverpool may not win the title because of the coronavirus. That well, was that, was, uh, that was prescient, yeah. And none of us put any money on it. But anyway, yeah, I, I think you're giving um, uh, Keir Starmer a hard time in your opening diatribe. Uh, the guy's just Monologue, been put in position. I call it. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is, uh, Tory government are going to be 500 billion in debt by the end of the year. 
anything could happen and it could be quite foreseeable that he and a new Labour Party could be, you know, sitting in government sooner than you think. Well, let me uh, accept your hypothesis uh, for a minute. Uh, what would be the gain in that? Uh, if, if, if the same kind of policies was being implemented by a Labour Tory, uh, a Labour man uh, whose only difference from the Conservatives was a red tie, uh, who would gain from that and what would they gain? The thing is, you, you're portraying this guy as a, a Tony Blair clone. That's exactly what he's he is. Gotta, he, he's got to be smarter than that, though. The, the public won't buy that. You know that. And he, he's well, the Labour Party bought it. The Labour Party members bought it. They did, and he got over 50% in the election. He against got 57% of the vote, yeah. Against some good candidates, but he's no uh, fool. Well, you know, you, you look at his CV, and you look at what he, he's got to try and engineer, and he's got to rebuild, you know, a party that fell to pieces at the last election. And, you know, George, there isn't going to be an alternative. We've got to, you know, move, you know, in the right direction and please, you know, just yeah. give them a chance. That, that's the argument for Joe Biden, too, of course. Yeah, <laughs> lesser, lesser of two evils. I, I don't know. Let, let's see how this plays out, eh, George? Well, but, you know, uh, I've always opposed the lesser of two evils approach to politics because either way, evil wins. And all you do by adopting the lesser of two evils approach is continually move the bar for evilness further towards more and more evil. Think about it. It's a matter of simple logic. Uh, and so uh, the Labour Party, uh, you say it fell to pieces at the election. That's true. Uh, but it fell to pieces precisely because uh, this genius that you're describing forced <laughs> Labour into ditching its previous policy on Brexit and adopting the second referendum people's vote policy. That's not much of a recommendation, is it, Jed? He's in situ now, though. That, that is it. That is it. Um, you know, he, he's yeah, but he's, drive he's either train. an idiot, he's either a lunatic that couldn't see that the second referendum policy would destroy Labour's chances in Brexit Britain, or he's worse than an idiot. Uh, he's either a fool or a knave. He either backed that policy because he knew that it would destroy Jeremy Corbyn's uh, uh, chances of being Prime Minister, or he's too stupid to be the Labour leader because he couldn't see it. Well, it's uh, one idiot, idiot against another then. I mean, you look at what's happening now with, uh, with Boris and so forth and the mm. way the tree's heading. So, well, uh, you know, if it's that choice, just the same as if it's uh, Trump versus Biden... Uh, I think that people will go for the idiot with the personality uh, rather than the block of wood. Uh, and uh, that's just my take on it. I'm willing to predict it now. Uh, OK, thanks, Jed. Unfortunately, in the Isle of Man, you won't have any say on it. Line two, Michael in California also wants to disagree with me. Most welcome. Go ahead, Michael. I, uh, hey, George, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I don't know what you want me to disagree with you about, but... Uh, it says here, I thought, uh, it says here he disagrees with me on the origin of COVID-19. Oh, well, I don't know what you said about that. Are you uh, referring to the bat to the pangolin theory? Uh, I, I, I have no idea where it arose, Michael. I just don't think okay, it's, I don't think it's safe to assume 
that it came from a wet market in Wuhan. It could have leaked okay, so from a Chinese uh, uh, bioweapons plant, or it could have leaked from an American bioweapons plant and been taken, either deliberately or more okay. likely by accident, by the American military to the military gains in Wuhan just weeks before the outbreak. Yeah, that's, they, had, they didn't really locate a patient zero or patient one. Patient one hasn't been uh, identified yet, no. Right. So, yeah, I know what you're talking about, the hotel where the military stayed, and yeah. I know about the wet market. Mm. And, uh, but uh, there's new information coming out uh, that uh, in 2015, a uh, Chinese uh, virologist, a Chinese scientist, was working in a state in, uh, in the United States, and she was being paid by both the United States government and the Chinese government, and uh, at that time they were altering the SARS virus. And uh, the same scientists went to China and continued uh, through the following years, past uh, 2015, uh, to alter the SARS virus and make it more contagious. There's, there's a big offense right there. Why would people want to make why would Why would anyone want to do that? Right, yeah. So, uh, and. Where is uh, this information from, Michael? This information. Where can is you check it? From uh, Dr. Rashid Buttar, who's kind of a left wing doctor. I don't believe everything he says, but uh, he's citing uh, papers, and the papers are on uh, various uh, YouTube channels. So he's pretty legitimate. He's not. He's not uh, uh, I think he's a little bit left-wing, but uh, his information seems to be legitimate. And so in 2019, there, uh, apparently there was an accidental leak from the Wuhan facility, uh, which was doing uh, no-nos. Everyone on Earth can agree that these are no-nos. You don't mess around with uh, viruses to alter them. And, uh, no, no. Uh, uh, I mean, we've got viruses uh, up Porton Down in England. You've got them at uh, Fort Detrick, and so bad was the security there, they closed the plant down uh, in the wake right. of controversies about leaks of material and leaks of information. Right, yeah. Well, they, they put the kibosh on the information coming out of Wuhan right away. There was a doctor that has since disappeared. Her name was Ai Fen. And she's a whistleblower doctor, and she disappeared in uh, late uh, 2019, so a few months ago. And uh, so the Chinese government tried to cover it up, and uh, now the information is coming forward uh, that uh, that lab was altering the original SARS virus, and that is what was uh, man-made, uh, morphed into what we now know as COVID-19, which is, uh, you, you know, George, they really don't shut down the planet unless uh, it's a really bad thing. I think everyone can agree on that, and the planet well, is I wish everyone, shut down. Well, uh, I wish everyone could agree on it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, they haven't yet. Anyway, Michael, thank you for that. I hear what you say. I don't uh, accept it at face value. I'll have to do my own thinking and researching uh, about that. But thanks for making that uh, 
discordant uh, call. Chris is in Glasgow on line one. Go ahead, Chris. Evening, George. Thanks for taking my call. Welcome. Uh, watching with great interest once again this Sunday evening. Um, George, I fully agree with what you said earlier on. <clears throat> Unfortunately, a lot of people don't see that the bigger virus here is capitalism. Now, this Tory government for over a decade has set up the NHS to fail, understaffed, underfunded, lack of equipment, and it's coming to show just now. I wouldn't be surprised that, God willing, this pandemic clears sooner rather than later, that you see notions to bring in a more privatised healthcare system within the UK where the working class and the poor will struggle. I don't think <clears throat> the Tories would dare to propose that, Chris. George, I, do you know, I do agree with you to a degree. However, their cronies will come out, people from big business. Now, what's disgusting to me is banks, big businesses have been bailed out for billions with no workforce there. I'm a staunch trade unionist and I believe on equal rights. And the labour it's given from the individual to these companies is, is priceless. However, they've been treated like complete and utter scum. Now, <clears throat> I've spoke to yourself back in January. I voted for the very first time for Labour. Sorry, my first time ever voting, and it was for Labour. I believed in Corbyn. I think this pandemic would have been treated with more class and more efficiency under a Corbyn government. There's too many people dying. The social distance, the lockdown is not working. We've even got to some people the great royal family breaching these uh, social distance uh, regulations, etc., and they're getting away with it. Now, I don't know the answer well, to it. Even I the chief medical officer in Scotland oh, yeah, uh, was nabbed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, two weekends that. in a, a good, row, she's gone to her... A good her, pile uh, of A good pile of sturgeon. <laughs> good pile, that's why she's still in post. Uh, uh, but, uh, it's not being uh, implemented, Chris. I mean, no, no. I, I, I take my little boy out every day for exercise but we had to we had to turn back today uh, because yeah. the piece of open space on which we exercise was yep. it was like a holiday camp uh, it was stay, absolutely mobbed with sunbathers yeah. and frolickers i couldn't I simply take my kid yeah. I stay close to River Clyde in Loch Lomond and you wouldn't believe the traffic and people out as if it's a Sunday stroll in pleasant weather. They're just not grasping this, George. Um, I won't take too much of your time, but I'd like to finish on a lighter note if I could. If I could finish on a lighter note, George, yeah. I hope the football season isn't ended because as a very passionate Celtic fan, I don't want any excuses for any tainted titles. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Chris, thank you very much indeed for that call. Uh, now we're coming up to the news with Mr. Pathy News himself, but I've got a minute uh, that I can read some of your comments. Patrick McCarthy on YouTube says, should the Democratic Party dump Biden and nominate Cuomo? And what about the Bernie voters? Well, I don't know if they should. I'm predicting that they will. Uh, Jolin Gingras, Jean-Patrick. Hi, George, from Quebec, Canada. We like your real talk everywhere in the world. Thank you very much for that. Artemis Smart says Bernie Sanders is incapable of leading. Doesn't say why. Miad Developer says capitalism also created the modern world. That's true, of course, uh, but it's outlived its usefulness, as is evident on the killing fields of Corona 2020.
20. Uh, Echo and the Bunny Woman says, New York City is the epicenter, yet the hospitals are empty. Mobile morgues, refrigerators turned off, no queues outside, no evidence of pandemonium. Mm. You see the kind of idiot that we were talking about uh, with uh, Caleb Mopan earlier? To be fair, Echo and the Bunny Woman probably wrote that before she heard the testimony of one of America's leading socialist activists, writers, broadcasters, Caleb Mopan, told her that he was locked down in Brooklyn uh, where 4,000 people, workers in Brooklyn, were already lying dead. He told us about the people being turned away at the hospitals. He told us, and we've all seen with our eyes, the queues outside the A&E uh, of sick people in New York. The fact that you could write this means you are sick in a different way. Echo, get yourself some help. Hindu nationalist says, Corby is radical just like the majority of his party. Well, that was obviously written before the majority of his party elected a block of wood. Tony Blair, without the laughs, without a single one of the redeeming features to be their new leader. Chris James, I discover, is the voice of Pathé News. He's our news reader too, and it's a delight to listen to him. I'll be back right after the news. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. The coronavirus continues to dominate news around the world. In the United States, Donald Trump is warning Americans to prepare for the toughest week of the coronavirus pandemic yet, predicting a surge in deaths. At his daily briefing, the president said there'll be death in a grim assessment in the days ahead. But in contrast to his warning, Trump suggested easing social distancing guidelines for Easter. He told a news conference that the country could be open again, and we don't want to be doing this for months and months. His calls to relax restrictions came on the day confirmed infections in the US passed 300,000, the highest number in the world. There have been almost 8,500 deaths from COVID-19 in the US, with most in the New York state. Trump has also fired a senior official who first alerted Congress to a whistleblower complaint that led to his impeachment trial. 
The president said he no longer had confidence in Michael Atkinson, the inspector general of the intelligence community. There are signs that COVID-19 may have peaked in some of the worst hit European countries. France, Spain and Italy have seen a decline in daily deaths. France saw the daily death toll fall from 441 from 588 on Friday. Spain saw another decline in daily deaths with 674 reported today, a fall of 135 since Saturday. Italy on the same day registered 681 deaths, having reported 766 deaths the day before. However, the UK's death toll has continued to rise by another 621 to 4,934, the latest figures show. Scotland's chief medical officer is apologising after she visited her second house in Fife twice whilst advising the public to stay at home. Dr Catherine Calderwood was photographed by a newspaper visiting her holiday home on the east coast of Scotland over the weekend. Calderwood admitted that she did not follow the advice that she was giving to others. She said at the Scottish Government's daily press briefing that she was truly sorry. Calderwood is also the face of a series of television public health warnings about the virus. Police Scotland today gave Calderwood a warning about her conduct after her visits. The Queen, in an historic televised address, said she hopes the coronavirus crisis will show that Britons of this generation were as strong as any as the country responds to the challenges it faces. In her message recorded at Windsor Castle, the 93-year-old monarch said it's a time of disruption in the life of our country, a disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, and enormous challenges to the daily lives of us all. The Labour Party's new leader in his first full day in the job says that key workers have been overlooked and underpaid and there'll have to be a reckoning for this after the coronavirus crisis. Sir Keir Starmer, who took over from Jeremy Corbyn, says that they were last and now they should be first. He also vowed to work with Prime Minister Boris Johnson to do whatever we can to defeat the coronavirus crisis by pulling together and being constructive. In a Palm Sunday Mass held in a deserted church, Pope Francis has told young people not to be afraid, but to put their lives on the line for others during this pandemic. Normally celebrated outdoors in front of thousands of tourists, the Pope instead spoke in the presence of only a small handful of priests and nuns and a reduced choir, who all maintained a safe distance from one another. He asked people to look at the real heroes who come to light in these coming days. They're not famous, rich and successful people, rather that they are just those who are giving themselves in order to serve others. And finally, the Malaysian government's Department for Women has apologised after it released a series of online posters telling women how to keep their men happy during the COVID-19 lockdown. Titled Household Happiness, the tips posted on Facebook and Instagram included giggling coyly instead of nagging, not allowing your appearance to slip and making sure the home is clean. One suggested women avoid being sarcastic if their partner was not helping with the housework. And that's Sputnik News. I'm Chris James. listening to Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. 
Well, thanks for the news, uh, Chris. James, that was uh, wonderful. Took me back to the 1950s. Uh, I'm actually giggling coyly at my wife all day, every day, and I haven't let my appearance slip. So I suppose I'm the kind of conservative person that the Malaysian government was aiming at, which is fitting, therefore, that our next guest, Dominique Samuels, is a political commentator, but is president of Orthodox Conservatives. And she joins us now by Skype. Dominique, it's a real pleasure to see you. Thank you very much indeed. I had a look at your output. Uh, surprisingly, I agreed with some of it. Uh, really? Um, yeah, well, I'm a social conservative with a small C, uh, and, uh, but not a political conservative with a big C. So let, let's start off by asking you how you think the Conservative government has handled, is handling, uh, this pandemic, this crisis. I'll tell you why I ask, because in the opinion poll published today, support for the government's handling has literally halved from last week, which would seem to suggest that people are viewing things rather differently now. How do you view them? Well, um, I think that the support for the government has halved because of the lockdown and the situation that has been imposed on everyone for starters. And it might be a little bit to do with how the police are behaving. But just um, to start with the government's response to the crisis, I do think that the government was slow to start with the crisis. Um, there was obviously the theory of herd immunity kind of floating around and not a lot of people were happy with that. Um, I think because we've been kind of slow to take the crisis seriously, um, we have seen, you know, the rate of infection skyrocket in many ways. Um, but I think what the government is doing now to tackle the coronavirus is sensible. There is a question of were they a bit slow to act, but I'm glad that we are in lockdown now and I'm glad that rules are starting to be imposed and I'm glad that businesses and those that aren't able to work at the moment are getting the support that they're due. Well, uh, I take your point that uh, there will be people in the negative column uh, in this opinion poll today uh, who think the government hasn't gone nearly far enough and people who think the government has gone far too far. Uh, yeah, but... I think I think it's I think it's easy to say that the government hasn't gone far enough. But um, if you look back to the reasons that Boris gave for not wanting to close schools and impose a lockdown straight away, it's because people would eventually get fed up with it. And I think there was also um, a scientific reason of when the virus would actually peak. And if we did we did it too early, then it would peak when we've all been let out again. So then it would essentially be a second wave of the coronavirus spreading at exponential rates and obviously the NHS being burdened with it. But if you look at the, what's going on now, people are already getting sick of being basically forced into flipping house arrest, locked into their houses, and the police are taking their newfound powers to some real ridiculous extremes. So you can well, kind how, of understand. How so, how so Dominique? Uh, as I said, Earlier, if you were listening, I took my little boy out for his daily exercise today, but we had to turn back uh, because the normally absolutely open space on which we exercise each day was like, mm -hmm. a, like a holiday resort. 
Uh, it was full of people and not a police officer in sight. Uh, I'm looking at the scenes every day on social media in various mm -hmm. places. I, I, I don't think the police can be accused of behaving in a draconian way at all. As a matter of fact, I don't think this lockdown is being properly implemented. Well, I do take that point, but some of the examples I've seen have been encouraging neighbours to report um, their neighbours for going out when they shouldn't like, really be going out. I've had people telling me that they've been stopped by the police, um, asking them where they're going. I've seen actual videos of that as well, telling people to get out of their car and walk back home because they've been spotted in a car with more than two people. Um, I've seen the government apparently suggesting that we won't even be allowed to go out to exercise anymore because some people aren't following the rules. I do think that whilst it's essential that we are on lockdown, there's only so much that you can impose on people because at the end of the day, we are free human beings. We do want to go outside. You know, it, we're in summer right now. So well, I, I think mean, it's true that we're free to uh, kill ourselves and, uh, and kill other people. I heard all these arguments uh, long before you were born when we introduced seatbelts in cars, for example. There were all kinds of people on the right of politics, mainly, saying... Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that free, it's not... I'm, I should be free not to wear a seatbelt. But sometimes the state has to act, doesn't it? Yeah, I do think sometimes the state has to act, but I also think there's the reality of whether or not people are going to listen to those rules no matter how much you kind of impose them and my issue is how far do we actually go i agree with the lockdown and i obviously do think that some people are really selfish considering the most vulnerable who can be essentially killed by the virus but i just don't know if having drones flying outside people's houses spying on people and urging neighbors to report each other is bodes well for the future because well, we are in a yeah, crisis right now, but course, we won't be forever. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, I, I hear what you say on that. But let's look at Italy, for example. You, you, you mm -hmm. may have just heard our news bulletin. The death yeah. rates in Italy are falling. The death rates in Spain are falling. The death rates in France are falling. The death rates in Britain are continuing to increase. And that seems to me uh, to go to two points. First of all, we did not lock people down early enough. And secondly, it's not a real lockdown. It's a bit like the war on drugs. I, I keep hearing people say to me, the war on drugs is a failure. There's never been a war on drugs. If there had been a war on drugs, you might have been able to say it was a failure, but it never actually happened. And the same with this lockdown. Heathrow Airport, I know because I live under the flight path, is uh, chock-a-block with arriving I, passengers. I, I agree with you there. They're coming, I, I don't from, think they're it coming from Milan. They're coming from uh, places that are uh, amongst the most infected places on the earth. They're not tested when they arrive, and they immediately mm -hmm. go out into the publication, into the, the population. What kind of a lockdown is that? I actually completely agree with you on that. I think I don't really see the point of an actual lockdown if people are still being able to swan in and out of the country. It doesn't really make sense. I don't really know why we haven't actually stopped flights from these places. It doesn't really make sense. I heard in the news recently that um, Priti Patel has actually been pushing for that, but I don't think the Prime Minister wants to go ahead with Where closing is the borders. She? I actually have not set eyes on her for weeks. Yeah, neither have I, to be fair. I've is, only seen the odd article. Is she being locked away for some reason?
anyway, look, um, the, the overarching point is, my, is the ideological one that I would like to uh, tease into this argument. Um, the libertarians uh, believe uh, that uh, every man is an island, uh, despite John Donne telling us centuries ago that no man was an island. Some people believe there is no such thing as society. Even Boris Johnson conceded this week uh, that there is. Mm -hmm. There are people who believe they have the absolute freedom to act as they please. And there are other people who believe uh, that we need to put the public good, the common good, before personal freedom. Does your organization uh, have a view on these things? Because I think once this is all over, Dominique, this is going to be the number one question. What kind of society do we want? Do we want mm -hmm. the invisible hand of the free market determine everything? Do we want this private good uh, uh, and public bad uh, attitude? Do we want this libertarian idea of individual freedom trumping uh, the common good and the public interest? Well, it's actually really interesting that you say that because just recently, um, our head of ideology, ideology and philosophy actually published an article on this on our website. And basically, it talked about how the very the central point of libertarianism, which is freedom, has kind of come into question because of this virus, because we've seen the government act in ways that, you know, the neoliberals and the libertarians are kind of horrified that. I've already seen them kind of their eyes bulging out of their heads because of how much the government is spending and also because of how this lockdown is being conducted. I think there is definitely room for conversation about how our society is governed. I'm personally not a libertarian or a neoliberal. I don't subscribe to those beliefs. And I think that there's endless proof that we do live in a society and that we are a community and that we owe it to each other to look after each other and to be less individualistic, which is what my organisation, Orthodox Conservatives, is about. So I'm kind of surprised about this, but I would, I would agree with you on that point. Well, uh, uh, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like that, Dominique? How did you end up as a Conservative? Well, I think that uh, I'd just like to highlight first and foremost that I'm a philosophical conservative first and um, a political conservative second, simply because I feel like the Conservative Party most closely aligns with my beliefs. And there isn't a party out there at the moment in Britain that reflects my beliefs in such a way. But what Orthodox Conservatives is about is trying to shape the Conservative Party and mould it to go in a new direction. Because I personally believe that too long the party's been dominated by this neoliberal consensus that's essentially, we believe, stopped working and it's time for a new direction to go in. So hopefully we'll be successful in doing that. Well, you've certainly done your organisation a lot of good tonight. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. And now, will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A, yes, 17%, down one. B, no, 83%, up one. 1,543 votes in so far. You've got until nine o'clock on my Twitter feed to cast your vote. Now, let's take a break just for a second. Radio Sputnik. 
We call Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan the most disruptive radio show in America. It's a great show and we have a lot of fun. We come to you live from Washington, D.C. every Monday through Friday morning. What I like best is that we bring in experts from all over the world. From Barcelona, from Egypt, from Seoul, South Korea. From Newark, New Jersey. We try to bring people great guests, great calls from our listeners, and of course, stupid jokes. And we do it with two hosts that have very different viewpoints. Now, here's the thing, Garland. A lot of people would think you and I would just argue. I mean, I'm a Republican Trump supporter. And, of course, I am a progressive Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter. The surprising thing is how much we actually agree on. And you won't be surprised because you're going to find out just how much you agree and just how much you enjoy this show. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Now, this is the spot on the show when we look back at this week in history, the things that shaped our times for good or ill. On this day in 1954, don't tell the wife, but it was the year I was born. The man who would be king of music, Elvis Presley, recorded his debut single, That's All Right. And it was for him and for many, many millions of us around the world. This was recorded on Sun Records. I continue to believe that Elvis's work on Sun Records was better than his later work. I know that's a cliche. I preferred his earlier work. But if you've never listened to Elvis's album on Sun Records, on which, from which That's All Right Mama was taken as a single, I really commend it to you. A year later, uh, on this day, that's 1955, therefore, uh, Anthony Eden replaced Winston Churchill as Prime Minister, which means I was born when Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister, as I say, don't tell the wife. Uh, that wasn't to end, though, so well. Uh, Anthony Eden was forced to resign over the debacle of British forces with French and Israeli invading Egypt to seize the Suez Canal. They were quickly forced to pull out after resistance from the Egyptians and intercession by the United States. Possibly the last time the United States said no to a foreign invasion and intervention. Uh, and uh, uh, Lady Eden uh, talked about how that year the Suez Canal flowed through her drawing room. And it was on this day, April 5, in 1963, that the Beatles received their first silver disc for Please, Please, me. And they did, for sure. In 1968, a day after the assassination of Martin Luther King, more than a hundred major cities in the US were rocked by an escalation in the race riots. At least 19 people died in the arson, looting and shootings provoked by the assassination. The violence did not abate until April 14th. In 1976, on this day, British politics was turned on its head when Harold Wilson unexpectedly resigned and made way for an older man, James Callaghan, who took over as Prime Minister. I knew them both well, and it was on this day in 1982 when Margaret Thatcher dispatched aircraft carriers, Invincible and Hermes, to the Falkland Islands from their base in Portsmouth in what would become the Falklands War. And a lot of people left their guts on Goose Green to see Mrs. Thatcher re-elected in 1983. It's also on this day in 1976 that the billionaire and recluse Howard Hughes died. 
He died on a medical flight from Mexico, taking him to Houston for treatment. He was so wizened and changed after 20 years of seclusion that the FBI had to take fingerprints to confirm it was him. He'd be at home actually nowadays, wouldn't he, with the old rubber gloves and constantly washing your hands. Uh, and in 1994, on this day, the rock star Kurt Cobain committed suicide, a big loss, actually. Later in the week, on April 9th, uh, more than 100 pickets were arrested during violent clashes with police outside two working coal pits in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire in the UK in the middle of the year-long miners' strike. It was also on April 9th, in 2003, that the massive statue of Saddam Hussein was pulled down in the main square in Baghdad as US tanks rolled into the heart of the Iraqi capital. How did that work out? <coughs> On the 10th of April in 1998, the Northern Ireland peace deal was clinched. The accord, dubbed the Good Friday Agreement, at least by Catholics, uh, was reached after nearly two years of talks and 30 years of conflict. I always hear the Unionists describing it as the Belfast Agreement rather than the Good Friday Agreement, almost like they didn't love Jesus like the rest of us. Uh, negotiations on the final day dragged on more than 17 hours after the deadline for an agreement passed. And uh, good work by Tony Blair would be churlish of me not to say so. On April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union, as was, beat the USA in the race to get the first man into space. He was Major Yuri Alexievich Gagarin, who was fired from the Baikonur launch pad in Kazakhstan, and now an independent state, of course, in Soviet Central Asia, in the spacecraft Vostok, which means East. Major Gagarin orbited the Earth for 108 minutes, traveling at more than 17,000 miles per hour. That's 27,000 kilometers per hour before landing at an undisclosed location. The USSR notched up a series of space firsts, beginning with the launch of the world's first man-made satellite, Sputnik, in 1957. Later that year, they sent a dog called Laika into space. And of course, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman cosmonaut in 1963 and is still alive and is still a member of parliament, a member of the Duma in Russia. And two years later, so that's 65, Alexei Leonov became the first man to perform a space walk. And that was the week that was in a momentous seven days. Let's take some calls. Betty is in London. Let's hear from her. Betty, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Nice to hear from you. Go ahead. Well... Uh, you asked me questions. No, <laughs> I know my family are going to be freaked out that I'm on this because I'm becoming a bit of a serial telephone or radio show since I've been in self-isolation. Well, you've so never spoken to a bigger audience than this. There's between yeah. half a million and one million people all <laughs> over the world listening to you, so don't be nervous or anything. No, of course not. <laughs> so here I am in central London. I live in just off Wardour Street, and uh, for the second week I tried to clap. And last week there was um, a, a solo guy in a flat next door. I met him, well, I put my head out the window, and there was no one this week. 
Well, every, I'll I tell you what, my street, every person in my street was out. And not just clapping, but cheering, some of them letting off fireworks and so on. Wardour Street, I used to live around there myself, Betty. Uh, Wardour Street's a bit of a funny area. It is, but I do love Soho because I've been here on and off for 35 years. Yeah, I love it I too, to, yeah. I, I love it too. Old, yeah, I have one of those old tenancies. And my landlord now owns most of central London, Chinatown, everywhere. Uh, I've had a, bit, a few rucks with them, but we're okay now. And, um, yeah, it's an odd place, but I like it for its quirky villageness rather than Absolutely, its Absolutely, yeah. yeah, but uh, it's probably, first of all, there's probably not a lot of people at home living there right now in this period of lockdown, in my experience. Uh, and uh, it's probably got the least uh, likely uh, group of applauders of any other part of London. As far as I know, the applause is getting bigger. It was bigger on Thursday than it was the previous Thursday, and it's going to be bigger this Thursday. People are so in love. People are so in love, Betty, with the National Health Service. I am in love. They saved my life. They killed my son's father 15 years ago and tried to cover it up. Um, but they saved my life a few years ago. So you're always on a continual roundabout with the NHS. But the idea is brilliant and the staff are brilliant. But I think the clap, and this is going to get me in trouble, is starting to patronise them. I don't want Prince Charles to say, my heart goes out to you. I want Prince Charles to say, my wallet goes out to you. I'm going to give you some of the Dutch food. Well, I, I do I think, think that that's going to become a big issue, Betty, not Prince Charles uh, necessarily, but what's going to become a big issue is, well, if we're clapping uh, these uh, people, why aren't we paying them properly? Uh, why aren't we equipping them properly? Uh, why aren't we making their work safer and better properly? And why aren't they living in decent key workers' flats? Why aren't they earning more than As they used to be once upon a time, single nurses in the past had nursing accommodation. Where is it now? I remember when they had key worker flats as well. There's yeah. nothing now. And I'm probably going to get clapped and st stuck in the towers for saying what I said. But I just feel... It's, it's just not enough to clap, and it's just not oh, enough. No. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, we have I'm, to clap, because we have to show the power that we love this institution, uh, warts and all. They didn't do a great job with my late father either, Betty. Uh, but they've done a lot uh, better delivering my many children, and I hope they will do again in just a couple of months' time. But the, we need to show the power and the media uh, that we love this institution and that we will not tolerate any further uh, uh, privatization of it, any further exploitation of its workforce. In fact, we're demanding the renationalization of the National Health Service, taking back from the privateers that which has been given to them, cancelling the PFI uh, yoke albatross of debt, cancelling it. They've had enough. Uh, from us. And I've got a couple more demands, Betty. Let me uh, tell you uh, what they are. I say that the student loans of every nurse in Britain should be immediately cancelled by the British government as a sign of goodwill. What do you think of that? I think a lot of that, but I also don't think medical students should be charged loans or fees either. Although they do make Again, there's a huge pecking order. I was in hospital for a very long time, a few years ago, 
and the nurses at the bottom of the pecking order. Actually, no. The Eastern European nursing assistants, who are very capable and very lovely, are at the actual very, very bottom, and they won't be around anymore. But, yeah, there's a huge pecking order, but I still don't think anyone studying medicine should have to pay for their education. I'm with you on that. Let's extend my demand, not just from nurses, but to all students uh, that go on to work in the National Health Service. They should be working in the National Health Service, of course, not with the public training them and then the uh, best of them siphoned off to the private medis- medical uh, uh, um, um, sector. Now, uh, let's close this, Betty, with this point. I ask you to reflect on it. The actor who plays a nurse in the BBC series Casualty is being paid 15 times a year more what an actual nurse in the NHS is earning. Oh, it's ridiculous. Betty, and thank you. Everyone paid a fortune, aren't they? Yeah, it's wonderful to hear from you. Say hi to so- to Soho for me. Uh, let's go to Flo in Fife on the issue of COVID-19. Go ahead, Flo. Hi, uh, George, sorry. Yeah. Um, what I would like to uh, raise the topic of uh, how the old media is dealing with us, in particular, like David Icke spreading 5G, being responsible for coronavirus and connected yeah, to and stuff yeah. like that. They're maniacs, these uh, people. Oh, absolute yes. maniacs. People are um, burning well, down 5G towers. I mean, how yeah, stupid and, and ignorant can you be? There's people dropping like dead with 5G all over the... Uh, with the coronavirus all over the world they've never heard of 5G don't have 5G it's just ridiculous yep. nonsense well this has been fresh on for a while it's been uh, I think uh, really the alternative media are going to need to be held to account us uh, Ike himself has over quarter of a million subscribers on his Twitter account alone so mm. he's got a bigger reach than most mainstream media platforms at the moment. Well, I never look at them. Uh, I've never looked at them since he said that the Duke of Edinburgh was a shape-shifting lizard. Yeah, well, unfortunately, people are beginning to take this guy really seriously. And mm-hmm. his presence is quite massive at the moment online. Um, it's been bolstered by other people like uh, Sean Atwood, uh, James English and stuff like this as well. No, uh, you so- can't put James English in that, uh, in that boat, surely. The Cabinet Office uh, said they were going to issue fines to mainstream media outlets for doing this, so I think it's about time the Cabinet Office took their fingers out their bums and started doing something about alternative media as well, because well, Twitter's reporting uh, uh, protocols are not sufficient to stop this nonsense. Well, uh, uh, of course, uh, fake news, wherever it comes from, is to be deplored, but the best enemy of fake news is real news. Uh, the best enemy uh, of uh, conspiracy theorists like Ike and co, uh, is uh, the Moats, the mother of all talk shows. This is an ideological battle, not be solved uh, by handing out fines, uh, Flo, because uh, I'm speaking as someone, for example, uh, who caused uh, talk radio, as was, uh, to uh, receive a massive fine because I questioned the veracity of the state narrative on the Scripple affair. We, this is ridiculous. You must allow a thousand flowers to bloom and you must praise the flowers that grow and you must uh, defeat the weeds. And the best way to defeat the weeds is to 
see that the flowers are properly tended, properly watered and fed. Flo, thank you. I wasn't expecting your voice when I saw your name was Flo, but thanks for the call. Adil is in Oregon in the United States. Let's hear from yeah. him. Adil, go ahead. Uh, Hello, Mr. Galloway. Uh, I just wanted to um, start off by mentioning a really great uh, op-ed written by uh, Professor Alex DeWall at the Boston Review. Um, and he, he submitted uh, five uh, overarching themes that are happening right now. And I just want to mention them really briefly. Um, number one, he said, this is a situation where science is contending with fatalism. Uh, number two, where the germ theory of diseases is disputing with ecological theories and where militarized, centralized bureaucracy is sparring with liberal capitalism. This is referring to China versus the U.S. responses. Number four, where an anthropocentric epidemic narrative promises to return to life as normal. And number five, an open democratic society questions its limits. So these are five very interesting um, themes that seem to be appearing now. Uh, all over the world, and there's a lot of there's a discussion now or, or questions about what does a post-COVID world look like, and I think you kind of touched on that uh, in your discussion uh, earlier with Dominique, and I I think that this is a very important question. Although I do not agree with um, the the idea that this means that uh, a socialist system should substitute a free market-based world, um, I. I have very serious uh, uh, arguments and, and uh, uh, doubts about this. However, I do believe that in the case of the U.S., there are certain things that need to be contended with. Uh, first of all, we have learned now with this epidemic that there is a need for uh, some form of hospital records system, national hospital records system, where we understand what hospitals have in terms of equipments, and the kind of provision of health care that they're able to deliver to all inhabitants all over the United States. This is a big country. Yeah, but how can uh, you do that two, with, uh, with, when the private sector runs the health care system in your country? Well, I, I, I think we need to just first start, let's just start with a record system. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, data should be, uh, you know, collected. The centralization of data collection should happen. I think yeah, you can but, do that but, without but any... Ideal, my point is this, that a, a hospital in the United States or an insurance company that runs hospitals in the United States, its priority is a fiduciary one uh, to return to its shareholders the maximum rate of profit. It is not to have enough masks or ventilators in the event that an epidemic will come along. Do you see my point? That's the difference yeah, I, I, between I, I, a, 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 a centralized okay. command uh, economy, a socialist economy, and a private uh, capitalist economy. A, you cannot I, I, I force agree. a capitalist to lay in enough ventilators, which he might never have to use, uh, just in case. You can't force them to do that because that will reduce their profit. No, I agree with that. I, I'm, you see, and this is the thing: is I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about just practical initial steps that can be taken moving forward. I'm not trying to, I, I don't think this idea that we should try to uh, force some sort of ideological contest in this discussion, I don't think that's feasible. I don't think that's practical, uh, you know, and, and there I think are it's, 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 in, it's ineluctable. It's staring you in the face. China can, well, order. China can order people to produce things. China can order people to have enough stock of things. 
the United States cannot. And that's, no, why, uh, you're, Mr. that's why you're the epicenter and why you're going to have 1930s levels of unemployment in a couple of weeks' time. Well, Mr. Galloway, with all respect, we, we cannot take anything China says as some sort of golden reference model. I'm not no, asking uh, you to do that. Don't do that. Look at the situation in China right now and the situation in your own country right now. We, 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 don't, we, we don't know what the situation in China is. Yes, China you do. Just... Yeah, look. No, that's, that's... Yes, you do. CNN, <laughs> MSNBC, all your television companies, all your newspapers are all over China. Mr. Galloway, they just kicked out a, a number of reporters very recently. They kicked out five from... Wall Street Journal reporters, but there's thousands of Western reporters in China, thousands of them. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that this gives us insight to the sort of operating environment that journalists have to work with in China. No, no, they, they, they kicked out the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, journalists for insulting the country, and the United States kicked out the same number of Chinese journalists. So let's park yeah, that. The, that. That's a, that's, no, uh, that's I, a digression. I, the I, situation agree, in though. China is that the death rate is absolutely under control. In the United States, it is absolutely out of control. These two well, okay, facts then, cannot okay. be disputed. Okay, well, I, I agree. Look, then we're talking about administration, not hospitals and, and I, you know, administration-wise. Look, there's some really... I have some big questions here. I don't understand why in, the, in this age of modern digital communications, why the President of the United States cannot have 50 governors on the phone, on some sort of video conferencing, every day for half an hour. Because we, we had a situation, we had a case now where the governor of North Carolina, I don't know if he was being sincere or not, just recently, last week, this week, mentioned that he didn't even know that this virus was so contagious. And he was just beginning to, you know, start yeah, to execute did, very... Yeah, no, I, I saw him uh, say it. Listen, exactly. Adil, so, I mean, Adil, it's been a pleasure to yeah. disagree with you. I need to press on. Thanks very much indeed for that call from Oregon. Uh, GDNPB says, if it wasn't for my youngest 11-year-old boy, I would see no real reason to go along with this new heading of the world. And Psychedelicid says the Queen's speech was recorded in 1971. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't see her speech because we were competing with her for audience. Our audience went up when she was on the television. Sorry, ma'am. Uh, Juan Polenas, rock and roll, says, Mr. George, this coronavirus in war, they are men make for profit, not for freedom. And JJ says, if this pandemic lasts a long time, the United States will become the most fascist nation in the world, even stealing from poor countries for their own welfare. I must say that the nadir of NATO was surely reached this week when Turkey, France, Sweden, the United States, were all stealing medical cargo bound for each other. In fact, Donald Trump actually said, we need these masks, we can't let other people have them. So much for solidarity. Let's take a quick break and Red Ken, the first and finest mayor of London, is up next. Radio Sputnik. 
Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Now, Ken Livingston was the first, I think undoubtedly the finest, though to be fair, there hasn't been much competition. Uh, he was the mayor of London that most people associate with, identify as the mayor. A lot of people think he still is the mayor and wonder why things have gone to pot. Uh, but uh, Ken Livingston, like me, uh, was forced out of the Labour Party, me by Tony Blair, Ken Livingston by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, he was a casualty, uh, like many others, like Chris Williamson and others, of the period in which Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party. At least I can say that the guy who expelled me went on to kill a million people. Uh, but he's back. Mr Blair is undoubtedly back. At least that's my view. Let's see if it's Ken's. Ken Livingstone, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Again, it's been a while. Uh, Ken, Good evening. Uh, am I right? Is uh, Keir Starmer Tony Blair without the laughs? No, no. Keir Starmer's genuinely Labour. I mean, if I was still in the Labour Party, I would have voted for him because I think he's the person most likely to defeat Boris Johnson at the general election in five years' time. And, I mean, if you look at his, his history, a normal working-class background, I mean, when he was a student at uni, he was in left-wing groups and so on. I mean, when he got the Labour nomination to stand for Parliament, um, in Holborn. Uh, one of the first things he did, he came up and saw me and had a chat about what he could learn about, you know, how to be an MP, draw on my experience and so on. So I think he's absolutely genuinely Labour and under his Labour government, uh, the position of working class and middle class families would dramatically improve like they did under the Attlee government after the Second World War. <laughs> Why is Tony Blair and his friends uh, dancing with delight then at Keir Starmer's victory? Well, because uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey didn't win and they were really scared that, you know, there'd be another Corbyn lefty um, running uh, the, the Labour Party. But I just think, you know, whilst I'm, you know, I, I agree with all her policies and so on, I mean, when I'm looking at you know, who you select for a Labour leader, I want someone who can defeat the Tories. Back in 1980, when the Labour Party had to choose between the lovely lefty Michael Foote and the old right-winger 
um, Dennis Healy. I actually supported Dennis Healy because although I really love Michael Foote, I agree with all his policies, I knew he could never win. And I would rather see a, a more centrist Labour government um, than a, a ghastly Tory government in power. Do you think he'll let you back in the Labour Party? I, I think, I mean, don't get, I'm 74. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to be still alive by the time he's Prime Minister. I Basically, I mean, when I lost the election to Boris back in 2012, since then, I've been retired. I've been the house husband, looking after the kids, doing the shopping, things like that. I mean, and so all this hysteria you had with the media whipped up about anti-Semitism and so on, I think they just worried that I might be a dreadful lefty influence on a Jeremy Corbyn government. Well, of course, on that subject, uh, uh, he's acted very, very quickly. In fact, his first act... Uh, was to write to the Board of Deputies uh, of <clears throat> British Jews, who uh, played a, a significant role in your uh, uh, being pushed out of the Labour Party, perhaps still more in Chris Williamson's case. Uh, he's basically told the uh, supporters of Israel in Britain uh, that he's their man, hasn't he? And that he'll be taking action against people like you, even though you're already out. I don't think he said anything about me, but clearly, I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader, he was, his problem was, I mean, he had a general secretary, um, Ian McNichol, who was totally hostile to him. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was totally opposed to Ian McNichol suspending me from the Labour Party, but McNichol just ignored him. And when you've seen, there was that BBC programme about anti-Semitism the Labour Party, Ian McNichol was just lying all the way through it. And so I think literally that was Jeremy's problem. He inherited a, a party machine run by, I mean, committed old Blairites and so on, who did everything to undermine him. And they whipped up this stuff about anti-Semitism. As soon as Jeremy got rid of McNichol and got in a decent general secretary. They did a really good crackdown on this. They found that out of every 2,000 Labour Party members, about one had tweeted something anti-Semitic. They were suspended or expelled. There is not a problem of endemic anti-Semitism in the well, Labour Party. that's not Party. what Keir Starmer says. Uh, he uh, again apologised, said he was going to pull this... Uh, these poisonous weeds uh, out of the ground. He said that the mm. party had been shamed by uh, anti-Semitism. He said that mm. just today. Yeah, he's clearly got to, you know, deal with this issue and remove it. Because if you look back at the general election um, last year, I mean, anti-Semitism seemed to dominate so much of it. All these vicious allegations against Jeremy Corbyn. I remember reading an editorial in the Jewish Chronicle which said Jeremy Corbyn was the worst racist of modern times, worse than the National Front and the BNP. I mean, it's also completely over the top. I've known Jeremy for 45 years. I've never heard him say anything racist, anti-Semitic or even sexist. Now, uh, what about the shadow cabinet so far, Ken? You probably know more than me as I've been in the studio. Uh, but... Uh, it looks like uh, the, the people who uh, departed uh, Jeremy Corbyn's front bench are pretty largely back again. Uh, zombies, the return of the undead. Is that thrilling you so far? Well, I think Keir Starmer's clearly going to put together a broad coalition. There'll be people from the left 
people from the right of the party. I mean, he's going to try and unite the party after all this division of recent years. And I mean, none of this is particularly easy. I mean, when, when I became the leader of the, the Greater London Council, I mean, I had a completely left-wing administration. There were no right-wingers in it at all. That was a mistake. You've got to actually reflect the balance of opinion in the party. And what, I, what strikes me about the appointments Keir Starmer's made, while I wouldn't agree with the politics of all of them, I mean, broadly, they are competent. Uh, they're the sort of people that look like they could run a Labour government. Now, uh, let me finally ask you the question we've asked on our poll. Will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? You're saying... Oh, that's why I would support him. I mean, I think of all the three candidates, I mean, literally, he's the one most likely to defeat Boris Johnson and end what will be the, a, a ghastly five years. Well, I think you should clip this interview and put it in the post with an application form to Sir Keir Starmer. I think you'll be <laughs> pleasantly surprised. Ken Livingstone, <laughs> thank you very much indeed Cheers. for joining Bye. us on the mother of all talk shows. On that poll, by the way, will Sir Keir Starmer lead Labour to power? A, yes, 17%. B, no, 83%. Or tell me what you think about Keir Starmer in the comments while you vote on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. 1,733 of you have voted so far. Ryan Fortprez says officials like to say, stand apart as they cram into the camera's view. I've noticed that. JJ says, the world has given stupid people a chance. And now in the crisis, everyone is watching what happens to stupid people in governments. Jobs not war, peace for all, says BBC News informed me that there were vulnerable people right on my doorstep. I went out three times and there was nobody there. Again, fake news by the BBC. Don't know what that means. Dolomite says, saving lies, when have they ever cared before? Get real. Sick of these puppets. Many can see through the lies and want to know why. And Bushman78 says, I actually agree with Dominique. Surprised with Gigi's position. Which particular position, Bushman? Nick Conbrio says, on my local next door platform, there was a woman encouraging us to snitch on people, breaking the self-isolation rules. And the captain says, I remember someone else saying it before. There's nothing worse than when your family are out to get you. And with this corrupt system, the chances of it happening are high. Don't know what that means. Mike Hunt says, lock everyone in, but allow taxi drivers to go around, infecting unknown numbers of people per day. Makes sense. And Chewy there's hardly anybody in a taxi. The taxes are hardly turning a wheel. Uh, Chewy Jap says drug dealers are the only people on the move in my area of London. You'd think there would be an ideal set of circumstances to track and arrest these flotillas of Audi and Merck driving gangsters. Yeah, good point. Howard says George gets it. Given the choice between an idiot with a personality or a block of wood, the electorate would choose the idiot with personality. And Lolly says, hmm, spoke to my 80-year-old Spanish mum just now. She liked Corbyn and Labour, but she's just loving Starmer. She says he's not too young, not too old, as in, and is impressed 
by his barrister background. And he can tie a Windsor knot in his tie. Spectre says, like him or not, when gorgeous Galloway is on form, he writes some good stuff. Probably correct in what he says here. But I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn is just too nice a guy to have done anything any differently. I think he's referring to my uh, article on RT.com looking back at the period of Corbyn's leadership. Wayne in Cheshire, on the other hand, thinks I'm asking the wrong question. Let's see why. Wayne, welcome. Hello. Um, <clears throat> I think you're asking the wrong question. The question should be about the next election is, will the corporate media and the press allow Labour to win? Now, I actually think that he will win easy. My theory is, now there's a red Tory in charge, they're not bothered who wins, Tory or Labour. No, that's true, definitely, so, to an extent, yeah, that's undoubtedly true. They would prefer so the Tories, what, but a red Tory will do. <laughs> that's right. Um, and to make people think that we have democracy when we don't, I think they would actually want Labour to win. Well, some of them would. Uh, it is significant that the first act of Sir Keir Starmer, uh, who started his life defending pickets uh, who were stood outside uh, whopping and being uh, prosecuted for their nightly demonstrations, uh, started his first day in his new job uh, writing behind the paywall in Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times. It looks like, like Tony Blair, he's seeking the imprimatur uh, of the old uh, publisher, Rupert Murdoch, no? Yeah, well, it, it actually went all wrong for me when he uh, accepted his knighthood, because for me, a real Labour person, such as myself... Well, to be fair, Ray, was he wasn't a real Labour person it. then. I mean, to be right. fair, uh, this was a long time before he was a real... He's only been in Parliament five years, and he's already right. the leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> But he took that uh, knighthood, uh, he probably regrets it now, but he can't actually get it off his shoulder. The Queen's, the mark of the Queen's sword is still on his shoulder. <laughs> um, um, surely the biggest, the biggest issue, Wayne, surely, is that right. he was the architect of the policy that destroyed the Labour Party. So yep. how is it likely, as Ken Livingston and you are arguing, uh, that he's going... Having been so stupid or venal uh, as to propose breaking faith with the electorate over Brexit, uh, that the same electorate is going to love him because he looks like a tailor's dummy. Well, the reason for that is that the general electorate has a, has a short memory. And when the election comes round, um, I don't really want to slag humanity off and all the rest of it, but... I believe 95% of the electorate doesn't really know what's going on. And even when I ask people, why are you voting such party? I never really get an answer. You get a silly answer like, I like him. I like the way he dresses. Just stupid reasons like that. But whoever the corporate media decide to win, I believe they'll win. That's who's really got the power. OK, Wayne, thanks for that call. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, anonymous driver says, I work as a London bus driver, and to be honest... Is being run as a complete joke by Transport for London, the unions, and bus operators. They've issued alcohol-free hand sanitizers, which is a dirt-cheap placebo, giving some other drivers the illusion that they are protected. My manager isn't even in the garage. 
Instead, they decide to send emails from their safe location well away from work, making sure mileage is covered. And Peter says, what are your views on the potential impact of COVID-19 in areas of world society that could possibly be absolutely decimated due to the severe poverty there, such as in the townships of South Africa and the Sudan and the untouchables in India? Indeed, I spoke about that last week. Uh, John Gowen says, coronavirus stimulus bill bails out corporations and banks with trillions of dollars. Meanwhile, America doesn't have universal health care. And Lord Brantsey says socialism is yet again bailing out capitalism at the moment. And Davy Rowe says when Britain needed money to fight the world war, they brought a temporary law in. It was called income tax. They'll never give up all of these measures against us. And Jared says, I can't find a mask. And Gary Clark says, you're the only one who tells the truth, George. Well done. Thank you, Gary. Joe Ward says, socialism breeds disease and capitalism pays for it. <laughs> That's from Ward 5 at Broadmoor. John Wish says, George for Prime Minister. And uh, Jack Klugman, famous name. He's a character in my uh, current uh, novel, Queensway. Jack Klugman, how remarkable. Jack Klugman, it's a dry run to keep the streets clear as the greatest depression takes hold. Well, I think we've got the news from Mr. Pathy News himself, the wonderful Chris James. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. The coronavirus continues to dominate news around the world. In the United States, Donald Trump is warning Americans to prepare for the toughest week of the coronavirus pandemic yet, predicting a surge in deaths. At his daily briefing, the president said there'll be death in a grim assessment in the days ahead. But in contrast to his warning, Trump suggested easing social distancing guidelines for Easter. He told a news conference that the country could be open again, and we don't want to be doing this for months and months. His calls to relax restrictions came on the day confirmed infections in the US passed 300,000, the highest number in the world. 
There have been almost 8,500 deaths from COVID-19 in the US, with most in the New York state. Trump has also fired a senior official who first alerted Congress to a whistleblower complaint that led to his impeachment trial. The president said he no longer had confidence in Michael Atkinson, the inspector general of the intelligence community. There are signs that COVID-19 may have peaked in some of the worst hit European countries. France, Spain and Italy have seen a decline in daily deaths. France saw the daily death toll fall from 441 from 588 on Friday. Spain saw another decline in daily deaths with 674 reported today, a fall of 135 since Saturday. Italy on the same day registered 681 deaths, having reported 766 deaths the day before. However, the UK's death toll has continued to rise by another 621 to 4,934, the latest figures show. Scotland's chief medical officer is apologising after she visited her second house in Fife twice whilst advising the public to stay at home. Dr Catherine Calderwood was photographed by a newspaper visiting her holiday home on the east coast of Scotland over the weekend. Calderwood admitted that she did not follow the advice that she was giving to others. She said at the Scottish Government's daily press briefing that she was truly sorry. Calderwood is also the face of a series of television public health warnings about the virus. Police Scotland today gave Calderwood a warning about her conduct after her visits. The Queen, in an historic televised address, said she hopes the coronavirus crisis will show that Britons of this generation were as strong as any as the country responds to the challenges it faces. In her message recorded at Windsor Castle, the 93-year-old monarch said it's a time of disruption in the life of our country, a disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, and enormous challenges to the daily lives of us all. The Labour Party's new leader in his first full day in the job says that key workers have been overlooked and underpaid and there'll have to be a reckoning for this after the coronavirus crisis. Sir Keir Starmer, who took over from Jeremy Corbyn, says that they were last and now they should be first. He also vowed to work with Prime Minister Boris Johnson to do whatever we can to defeat the coronavirus crisis by pulling together and being constructive. In a Palm Sunday Mass held in a deserted church, Pope Francis has told young people not to be afraid, but to put their lives on the line for others during this pandemic. Normally celebrated outdoors in front of thousands of tourists, the Pope instead spoke in the presence of only a small handful of priests and nuns and a reduced choir, who all maintained a safe distance from one another. He asked people to look at the real heroes who come to light in these coming days. They're not famous, rich and successful people, rather that they are just those who are giving themselves in order to serve others. And finally, the Malaysian government's Department for Women has apologised after it released a series of online posters telling women how to keep their men happy during the COVID-19 lockdown. Titled Household Happiness, the tips posted on Facebook and Instagram included giggling coyly instead of nagging, not allowing your appearance to slip and making sure the home is clean. One suggested women avoid being sarcastic if their partner was not helping with the housework. And that's Sputnik News. I'm Chris James. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold.
Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Well, you know the world's turned upside down when Ken Livingston backs Sir Keir Starmer, says he would have voted for him, and reveals that in 1983, he supported Dennis Healy against Michael Foote. How extraordinary. You were telling me next, the moon's made of green cheese. But the moment is made for the Moat Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar, who is a vascular surgeon, as well as a good friend and comrade of mine. Uh, but he doesn't speak for the NHS, of course. He's speaking purely in a personal capacity. But my goodness, does he speak some sense. And we've enjoyed his contributions over these last dreadful weeks. Dr. Ranjit, thank you very much indeed for joining us again. Um, summarize, if you would, this point. Italy, France, Spain, death rate going down several days in a row. Britain, death rate going up every day. Discuss. Thanks, George. Pleasure to be with you again. Um, you're right, George. We are progressing rapidly. Uh, my brother sent me a little graph. Uh, he said a number of exponential um, graphs that we've all been looking at against time is also going up exponentially. I'm afraid to say we're still very much in a phase of ascendancy, both in the world and within the UK. Uh, looking at the world cases, and we know, of course, these are the tip of the iceberg and only represented tested data, and perhaps we'll come back to that point in a second. But we've gone over one and a quarter million confirmed cases in the world. Now, vast majority of those now are in the United States of America, who themselves have a third of a million. But in the United in the United Kingdom, we have over 50, well, we have 50,000 cases, of whom we know that 5,000 have died, and that still represents um, a very large mortality figure. Um, we've said for a little while that we've been probably two weeks behind uh, Italy in terms of our curve. And despite social distancing, which, you know, the population are doing their best to comply with in difficult circumstances, where economically many are challenged and unable to fully comply with that um, increasingly hard line put down by the government, um, numbers are still rising. And we've seen record numbers of deaths over the last two days, um, on some days surpassing as you say, France surpassing Italy, uh, surpassing Spain. So it's a very worrying time for our health service, and we're really feeling that strain on the front line. Yes, I mean, I'm seeing videos of uh, people breaking down, uh, coming off the front line after their shifts. Uh, a number of your colleagues uh, have actually perished. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's said that they perished because the personal protective equipment had not been uh, made available to them. I saw a missive on Twitter, I think, today uh, from a nurse who says that she's working on a COVID ward and all she's got is, uh, is a, a plastic apron and a paper mask. Uh, this is intolerable, surely. It's an embarrassment, George. Um, uh, I was contacted by Press TV to, co to come on the air and talk to them about the fact that actually Doctors across the country have been asked to take down social media posts. Everyone's on social media these days, including doctors. And they've been posting about their frustration and annoyance um, 
with the lack of PPE, but also the inadequate um, protocols for PPE. And in several weeks now, it must be three weeks ago, we discussed the fact that China had published in, in English, so not for themselves, but for our benefit in English, the summation of their experience uh, in dealing with the Wuhan pandemic, the Wuhan epidemic rather, um, which included organization of hospital and appropriate levels of PPE. But I'm afraid we've been very slow, partly through a sense of uh, cultural superiority, partly because of uh, hostility of our of our ruling class, which filters down through our academia and even our medicine, that we don't take China seriously as a purveyor of good information, good data, good quality products. In a way, China's far surpassed that point. They've proved that just by being the workshop of the world and being and manufacturing those products. But still, there's a certain reluctance to take on board the lessons. I think. That will not be the case at the end of this pandemic. I think my own colleagues are increasingly looking towards the information gained from China. I, I have a sister-in-law who works in the States. She told me there was a, a mass call of 9,000, conference call of 9,000 of their top uh, medical personnel between themselves and China in order to learn from China's experience. But I'm afraid, due to the NHS being run down, due to our protocols being update, uh, out of date and very slow to catch up, due to our managers not being clinical and not realizing exactly what we're facing, uh, it, it has been an embarrassment. My, my, my wife, who's currently on maternity leave, but is also a surgeon at a local hospital in London, has gone to the point, she's been so worried, of coordinating donations. And these donations have been coming and it's heartwarming to see how the British population want to help and value the NHS, but donations from our children's school of goggles that can be used at the NHS and from a local builder of the full protective equipment that they use for spraying can be used by the NHS staff. So there is still a desperate shortage. I saw a press piece that Virgin had flown back a whole bunch of uh, protective equipment donated by China. So China are trying to help us. Virgin, of course, have their own axe to grind. They're using it as a PR statement in order to try and encourage us, the public, i.e. The, the taxpayer, which will be the, the poor once again bailing out the rich to give them a massive seven billion to bail out their industry, which I'm opposed to. So there, there's a conflation there. But I'm afraid to say some hospitals, the best hospitals, you know, the, the, the biggest teaching hospitals, not not exclusively, but some of them are doing their best to put in place modern PPE and, and acquire it. There's a, a large number of interfaces, and particularly if you go into secondary care, tertiary care, GP services, care homes, there's an almost total absence of adequate provision. And of course, frontline staff, we're increasingly realized, doesn't just mean people within the NHS. Frontline staff means logistics, it means lorries, it means people in the food industry, people in factories that are still operation operational. And all of these people have been failed in terms of the protective, uh, protective equipment that they have been given and their inability in their daily work routines to actually adequately self-isolate. And all of that, of course, will have an impact upon the numbers who are dying. And there's, maybe I'll leave it there for now, George, but we can perhaps return to the question of data because there still is a, an undercurrent of people who don't seem to believe that there's a genuine reason. And despite, I think, a mishandling from our government, 
uh, which filters down. And despite the NHS being very run down, we do have to recognise it's a very real situation and it is in the interest of all working people to take it very seriously. Yes, uh, I, I made the point earlier on your last point about the PPE uh, that my, my mother of 85 has had to, uh, so therefore in a high risk uh, group uh, with one or two, not serious, but one or two underlying uh, health problems, she's had to shut the door on the uh, nurse and the social care that came to her every other day uh, because none of them have got um, so much as a mask or a glove uh, or had a test. So she has to make a choice uh, between being in total self-isolation, even my sister can't, she has to leave the groceries on the door, uh, being in total self-isolation or let uh, healthcare workers in that don't have any protection and may very well, uh, God forbid, kill her. Uh, the social care, Cinderella, is even worse, actually, than the NHS. It is, and uh, not only has social care been uh, means-tested and run down, so it's been a, a deep source of embarrassment to me as someone who really values the ability to treat anyone who turns up at the door to give them the best care we can and never have to charge them, never have to ask them about their personal circumstances, whether they can afford to pay. It's a deep sense of shame that patients have been had delayed discharge from hospital for the last many years, easily five to 10 years, while we go through a process of means testing them, seeing what health, you know, what, what social services and social care they can receive at home. And having got a patient through the worst of their illness, we're unable to put them very often in a position where they're actually able to carry on, continue to recover and look after themselves at home. And I'm afraid to say that the legislation that's put in place uh, around COVID-19, which was put, don't forget, before any reasonable health preparations to take care of staff or patients was put in place. Now, also doctor, provides for doctor, the, the let me, give you, let me interrupt care. you uh, to give you some breaking news. Uh, it's being reported that Boris Johnson has been taken into hospital, having tested positive with COVID-19 last Friday. Um, this is quite serious news. Uh, talk to us about what what would be happening to Boris Johnson right now? He's being he has been taken into hospital. What's the first thing that'll happen? Be interesting to know which hospital. Very often it's St Thomas's Hospital that um, parliamentarians go to, um, but that may not be that may not be the case. Um, one would have to be totally objective uh, and look after him based on his medical needs. I can only presume that the symptom that would have sent him into hospital was either persistent fever and inability to feed himself and he needs some fluids and maybe that he needs some oxygen if he's short of breath. I obviously have no information and I'm simply giving you a, a, a likely scenario. Um, were he to need oxygenation in the first instance, that would be non-invasive, but should it get worse enough, it's not impossible that he should have a recourse to or need a ventilator. Um, ah, well, now we come to ventilators. Why did we not have enough? Why have we taken so long to get more? It seems incredible to me that, uh, that you know, people can get tests. Ocado bought tens of thousands of tests for their employees. Um, people in other countries are buying 
huge numbers of ventilators. Some of the very poorest communities in the world, like Gaza, for example, are actually making their own ventilators. Why are we so desperately short of them, doctor? Um, our rate of ICU beds is, is very low. It's historically been very low. Um, I told you before, it's not an unusual experience for me if I'm operating on a patient who will need to go to the intensive care. We have to wait till quite late in the day to find out whether that bed is available or not. There is not really sufficient capacity for our everyday needs. Now, this obviously, this crisis, this epidemic, represents a massive uh, increase in the demand for ventilators. But it's true to say that there were not enough anyway for our everyday needs. And this is, we've reached the point of pretty much maximal uh, occupancy of ventilators, maximal occupancy of uh, NHS beds, and that's despite the fact that we have stopped elective surgery and run down and discharge, run down services that are deemed non-essential and non-related to COVID and are doing our very best to avoid other people coming into hospital. So it shows you that there is an un overall reduction in capacity of beds. Now that's gone along with, as we've talked about before, the privatization initiatives, the redevelopment of hospitals with ever fewer number of beds, the selling off of cottage, cottage hospitals and land, and the PFI initiative. So all of this is designed to push the NHS in the direction of privatization and insurance-based model uh, akin to the United States. It's very interesting. I saw a um, uh, and, and a Stanford-trained uh, U.S. doctor. Uh, again, he's he's not an infectious disease specialist, but he, he's very active on social media um, and actually issuing almost a manifesto demanding that this crisis was showing that their insurance-based system was not fit for purpose. They had had doctors who had demanded better PPE and spoken out about the lack of PPE in the States being sacked. And the medical community are up in arms that they are being run as a massive industry whose object is to make money and not care for patients and physicians are suffering. And really, this is the situation that the NHS is being driven towards and is already showing signs of. But, that'll have, to, but that'll have to stop now, uh, Doctor. Uh, the Tories could not dare now propose further privatisation of the National Health Service. In fact, it'll be very difficult for them to resist demands for the renationalisation of some of the privatisation of the NHS. They cannot go towards an American system that is collapsing in front of our eyes. And even Donald Trump is talking about bringing in an NHS. Our ruling class is, um, is very cunning, George. And there's no question. I mean, even the Financial Times is printing articles in which they're saying, you know, the if you like, a peak globalization is over. Yeah. That there's no way that the population of the world will accept the continuing concentration of wealth in ever fewer hands and the marginalization and pauperization of vast swathes of the world's population. Well, that's all that's already happened. Um, but our government are very careful to preserve the elements of private medicine, to talk about buying in services, buying in tests, buying in beds from the private sector, buying in ventilators, buying in new ventilators, commissioning industry to help to make to, to throw huge amounts of money at failing businesses and industry, failing because they've impoverished their market and their market is no longer able to buy 
you know, the products that they make. So an inherent crisis, which has been happening since the 1840s and in ever increasing numbers, and we've never really come out of the crisis of 2009. So that's the economic situation we're facing. Our government is very keen to avoid talk of privatization, to avoid talk of requisitioning, and they're throwing huge amounts at, at industry in order to try and paper over the cracks. It is up to us. It is up to us. Keir Starmer, Recently, you've been talking about him on the show. He's very recently come. Uh, it's been announced that he's won the Labour election. He's already saying, how has he pitched himself? He wants to form a national unity government. He wants to enforce stricter measures on the people to make sure they stay at home. So shifting the blame is already a sign of shifting the blame away from the government. And with the cooperation of a new Labour type administration, shifting the blame for the death toll onto the behaviour of British citizens. Of course, if we tested adequately, if we had taken appropriate measures to, to find out who had the virus and to stop it spreading, we wouldn't be in this situation. The economic crisis is not caused by people's behavior. It's not caused by the virus. It's caused by an inherent problem of our economic system. And I'm afraid to say that the new Labour administration show every sign of joining with the Tory administration in order to change that narrative and do their best to preserve the status quo. It will be well, I, I, I don't know about that. He's got the support of Red Ken Livingston, uh, surprisingly, uh, on the show this evening. Dr. Ranjit, thank you, as always, for a wonderful tour of the horizon. Let's take a quick break. One minute. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. Now there's a new poll. Should highly paid professional footballers be forced to take a wage cut to support low-paid, non-playing staff? A for yes, B for no. Uh, some of the football community, Gary Neville in particular, uh, but also Jordan Henderson of Liverpool uh, and, uh, and Ryan Giggs, uh, and, uh, and also Marcus Rashford have made wonderful statements and taken terrific action uh, to do their bit in this uh, crisis as people who have benefited massively from uh, the big money that's available in professional football. But some of the clubs, I don't want to name names in case you think I'm biased, have been asking the state to pay the 80% uh, of their wages of their uh, cleaning ladies and non-playing staff and so on. A lot of people think that's pretty unseemly. So tell me what you think on my Twitter. Should highly paid professional footballers be forced to take a wage cut to support low-paid non-playing staff? A for yes, B for no. Now, let's take some calls. Rahul is in France. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Rahul. Oh, hi, I'm actually a woman, George. Wonderful. <laughs> Although I believe such things shouldn't, shouldn't be mentioned. We're supposed to just say the person now, I no, think. No, no, I'm very happy that you're a woman. I want more women callers. It's just that oh, I, I know a couple of people called Rahul who are men. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, yeah, my name's actually Rahul. It's an Irish name. Oh, my anyway, goodness. 
Uh, you see, <laughs> the, uh, in translation, I thought that was a Bengali man coming up. There you go. Yeah, I, I get that quite a lot. Okay. Anyway, um, I wanted to you. I wanted to talk about the interview you had with Ken Livingston because yes. I was I was delighted that you criticised Jeremy Corbyn because I think he has presided over the most shocking attack on freedom of speech in Westminster, and he has done nothing about it. And I was delighted um, that you made the comments about him because. Ken Livingston and Chris Williamson are living in denial, and I was wondering why that was. Because you point out quite rightly that, that Jeremy Corbyn is responsible for Ken Livingston and Chris Williamson having been hounded out of the party. Sure. Now, Ken Livingston says that he approves of Rebecca Long-Bailey's policies, and he also said that he doesn't think that Keir Starmer has said anything specifically about him, in other words, about himself, Ken Livingston. I mean, he's, living, he... he's living in total denial if he thinks that Sir Keir Starmer is going to bring him back into the Labour Party. That, that is a level of delusion that makes me worry about uh, Ken's uh, 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 health. Exactly. Yes, no, I'm delighted you said that. I mean, does it, but doesn't he know that Ken Livingstone gets a specific mention in the Board of Deputy 10 pledges that Keir Starmer has signed up to, Indeed. in which he Indeed specifically... He yeah, and then and, and Rebecca Long-Bailey signed them too. But just to talk about Quinn Williamson, who seems less in denial than Ken Livingston, but still in the denial nonetheless. Uh, Chris Williamson identified Tom Williamson as somebody who he believed to be responsible for Labour's general election defeat. Tom Watson. You mean Tom Watson? Sorry, of course I do. Yeah. Sorry, of course I do. Now, Corbyn nominated Tom Watson for a peerage. Now, Chris Williamson doesn't seem to have He also nominated that... Ian McNichol for a peerage, who just stabbed him in the front, back, sides and on the top of his head. Uh, in the last 24 hours. Yes, and, and I think perhaps it was this weakness of Corbyn that may in fact have been his undoing, but I was wondering why Chris Williamson seems so loyal to Corbyn and he doesn't seem to acknowledge this conflict, you know, between his praise for Corbyn and his criticism for um, Tom Watson. Well, and, I don't um, know. I, I, I don't follow every word that falls from the lips of Chris Williamson, but uh, I think I can say without betraying confidences uh, that uh, Chris Williamson is deeply disappointed uh, in Jeremy Corbyn's failure to lift a finger uh, to come to his aid when the hounds were uh, tearing him down, when he was the stag at bay. I have actually written about this on RT.com this uh, weekend. You can see it now. Just go to RT.com. You can see my article about Jeremy Corbyn. And many people feel uh, that the betrayal of Chris Williamson was the last straw uh, but, of course, it's only the last straw because a lot of other straws have been uh, piled on the, uh, on the back of the camel. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't speak for Chris. Uh, I have political differences uh, with Chris Williamson at the moment where uh, I'm in a party. He isn't. He's setting up uh, a, a grassroots movement, which he says is not going to be a, bar a party. We'll see uh, about that. But I have the highest opinion of Chris Williamson's integrity. I think he was treated abominably, literally abominably. Uh, I have never quite seen, and I've been a victim of the witch hunt myself some years earlier, as I said earlier. Uh, but I have never quite seen anything like it. One minute 
Chris Williamson was an important MP, a potential leadership candidate, maybe that's the reason, a potential deputy leadership can candidate, certainly, a man who was defending Corbyn like no, no other MP, and doing so publicly and on the road, and within one minute, after saying something not only completely unexceptionable, but absolutely correct. Look at it, what he said. Absolutely correct. Within a minute, Reho, he was finished. His political career was snuffed out in a single minute. Can you believe and that? And he was the little boy. So he was the little boy who said the emperor has no clothes. He said what Corbyn should have said. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, but, We're in but agreement. Corbyn is, We're in agreement. Not nice. Corbyn's not nice. It's not nice not to stick up for good people. Well, He's not nice. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to say that rather than me. Thank you for that call from France. I have to get you off the line, though, because there's a legend on the line, and all lines have to be cleared when a legend appears on the board. It's Lizzie in Gloucester. Go ahead, Lizzie. Hi, George. Hi. You do make me laugh. Tell me. I'm a legend in my own lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about Starmer and his, um, his, you know, his uh, rising to the throne. And uh, I know that he does have family in Tel Aviv and he's a supporter of Israel, uh, Israel's right to be. And, uh, but he's the only one of the candidates to say that he is not a Zionist. Um, all the other candidates... He said he, he supports Zionism 100%. <laughs> yeah, but he said he isn't a Zionist himself. Okay, but he did but say he, support... he supported Zionism 100%. I'm not sure what... Is that not a distinction without a difference? Oh, that's what I think it is as well. <laughs> but also, um, he, was, he was, while letting an organisation hold sway in which you don't have to be Jewish or even Labour... Um, the Jewish Labour Yeah, the so-called Jewish, Jewish Labour Movement, where you neither have to be Jewish or even Labour. Uh, but I, I've got to tell you this, Lizzie, I'm, I'm going to disappoint you. Uh, That's right. the, this issue... You never disappoint. <laughs> this issue is the least of my concerns about uh, Keir Starmer. Uh, in fact, I think everyone has spent too much time on this issue, on each side of the argument. My point is that Keir Starmer is Tony Blair come back to life? In fact, Tony Blair, who never died, is now back at the top of the Labour Party, and that goes far, far wider than the Israel-Palestine question, don't you think? I, well, I think it plays into it. I think they are, they are all assimilated. If you look at the way that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't able to... Um, or he wasn't able to intervene. He wasn't able to lead. He was he was uh, he was kneecapped at every opportunity, if not stabbed in the backside and front. Um, he wasn't able to stand up, even personally, for Chris Williamson, uh, let alone publicly. And he wasn't allowed to voice anything, any opinion. So uh, now when you look back on that, it's not surprising that added to the fact that Tony Blair is, uh, is still a member of the Labour Party, still a member of the Labour Party, 
and um, that Keir Starmer, who is, he might well be a Labour man, but the, the Labour itself is a very broad church, isn't it? Well, so, uh, it won't be a broad church in a month or two, uh, because it's quite clear to me that uh, Keir Starmer has begun the way he intends to continue. Uh, and uh, I've got to tell you uh, that uh, people with the kind of views that you have will be rooted out of the Labour Party. False charges will be brought against them and they will be driven out. Uh, there's going to be the mother of all purges in the oh. Labour Party and it's already started on the front bench. Yes, it's already been done. To, I got thrown out last week um, for being a... I might be an online racist or anti-Semite. Well, you're a legend here, Lizzie. I've got, to, I've got to press on because I've got this breaking news. Thanks for the call. Prime Minister Boris Johnson been admitted to hospital for tests 10 days after testing positive for coronavirus, Downing Street has said. And Mr Johnson continues to have persistent symptoms of coronavirus. It was described as a precautionary step taken on the advice of his doctor. The Prime Minister remains in charge of the government. Eh? and urged people to follow its social distancing advice, like he didn't do. Well, look, I'm very sorry uh, that he is ill. I'm even more sorry that his partner is ill because she is pregnant, as indeed is my own wife. So I'm very sorry for what's happened to the couple. I'm very sorry that Boris Johnson's ended up in hospital. But you can't run the government from hospital. That would be extremely disruptive to the hospital as well as being unlikely to be the best form of governance for Britain at this time of national emergency. So I urge you, Prime Minister, to reconsider that stance. Sky News have got this. Prime Minister Boris Johnson admitted to hospital for tests. It's said that he still has persistent symptoms and a high temperature. The admission is said to be precautionary rather than an emergency measure. The Prime Minister is still leading the government. Well, old-fashioned, me, I just think that is uh, ridiculous. Now, we're back with the Hall of Fame and the Wall of Shame. The latest entrant to the Hall of Fame is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who was assassinated 52 years ago yesterday. It wasn't his most famous speech, but it was the most prophetic. I have been to the mountaintop. I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Less than 24 hours later, 52 years ago yesterday, Dr. Martin Luther King was killed by an assassin's bullet in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm not going to name the foul killer in the tribute to the man he killed. The Reverend King had come to Memphis to support a sanitation workers' strike. Important point, that. In a speech to a mass crowd in a local church, surveying great times in history, including Egypt, the Roman Empire, the Renaissance, and the American Civil War. King said he would be happy if God allowed him to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century. 
It wasn't to be. He died aged just 39. Five years earlier, King's most famous speech, one of the most powerful ever delivered, spoke of his dreams. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Much changed in the years following his death, although much has remained the same. Dr. King was born Michael King Jr. in Atlanta, Georgia in 1929. His father, Michael, was a preacher who in 1934 visited Berlin and the sites associated with the Protestant Reformation leader, Martin Luther. While there, he witnessed firsthand the rise of Nazism. On his return, he called himself Martin Luther King Sr. with his son as Junior. It wasn't until Junior was 28 that he formally had his birth certificate altered to his new name. At school, Dr. King won first prize in a speaking contest in Georgia. In his speech, he stated, Black America still wears chains. The finest Negro is at the mercy of the meanest white man. On the ride home to Atlanta by bus, he and his teacher were ordered by the driver to stand so a white passenger could sit down. King initially refused but complied after his teacher told him that he would be breaking the law if he did not submit. King said that he was the angriest he had ever been in his life. Although as a young man he was doubtful about Christianity, he later felt the call and studied for the ministry. King married Corietta Scott on June 18, 1953, on the lawn of her parents' house, and they became the parents of four children. From 1955, King was involved in a series of boycotts and protests against prejudice. He organized and led marches for black people's rights to vote and against segregation. He was unwavering in his belief in nonviolence, which brought him into conflict with other black leaders. He was one of the organizers of a massive quarter of a million march on Washington in 1963, which Malcolm X called the farce on Washington. The Nation of Islam forbade its members from attending that march. However, it was a resounding success. It made specific demands, an end to racial segregation in public schools, meaningful civil rights laws, including a law prohibiting racial discrimination in employment, protection of civil rights workers from police brutality, and a minimum hourly rate of the equivalent of $17 an hour today. It was here in Washington that day that King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. King continued to protest against the Vietnam War, an end to housing segregation and for a black emancipation law. In 1968, 
He organized the Poor People's Campaign to address issues of economic justice. He traveled the country to assemble a multiracial army of the poor that would march on Washington to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience at the Capitol until Congress created an economic bill of rights for all poor Americans. And it was on this day in 1968 that he was murdered, which set off a chain of violent protests in dozens of cities. Martin Luther King is our latest and inspiring entrant into the Hall of Fame. I just want to add this. The critical mass which led to the circumstances in which King had to be slain was that he moved from being only a civil rights leader. He moved even from being a civil rights leader and an anti-Vietnam War leader. He was there for the Memphis strike of refuse workers. It was when he made the triptych, demanding civil rights for black people, demanding an end to the Vietnam War, and demanding economic justice for the working class of all races and backgrounds. That triptych tripped the switch and caused the murder of this great man. Because the confluence of these three great issues in 1968 was more than the state which had bugged him and burgled him and may even have been involved in murdering him, they could take him no longer. The night before his death, Dr. King said this, some men do things because they're profitable. Some men do things because they're popular. I do things because they are right. Martin Luther King, welcome to our Hall of Fame. Let's take a call from David in Nottingham. Go ahead, David. Hi, George. How are you? By the grace of God, um, I'm still good. Thanks. Good. Uh, I've, I've got um, some qualms with the um, COVID. Uh, I know I know people are dying from it. I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that. Yeah. Some um, of them are but, friends um, of mine, so don't deny it, please. Yeah, no, no. No, I'm not denying it. Um, but I think the numbers are being manipulated. Um, they are. Professor they're being manipulated Walter. down, not up. No, no. Up. P Professor Walter Ricciardi from um, Italy, from the Health Ministry, he says that they're being too overgenerous because the way deaths are reported in Italy, um, most people who die, they've got two or three underlying health issues. Yeah. Um, most we dealt with that last week, David. David, David, David. We dealt with that last week. We had an eminent doctor on last week. And he said, if you have got coronavirus, that has catalyzed your death. That's like no, saying. Might that, have added to it. If someone's 85, no, it's catalyzed it. No, it has catalyzed it. It has catalyzed it. Why are you in denial about this, George. David? Why because, is it so important to you to deny why, this? Why collapse? Because the economy's been collapsed. And why? Who's on a benefit? Who's followed the money? 
Everyone's so going to have to liquidise assets so you want, to raise capital. You, you want everybody to go back to work and stop the social distancing, do you? So that the capitalists can make a bit more money, do you? No, because all that's going to happen are capitalists, because the private businesses, they're all going to have to raise capital because they're going bankrupt. They're going to have to liquidise their assets, and who's going to buy it? Well, the, the why, are why are you crying about that? Why are you crying about that? Are you a big capitalist, David? No. Well, why are you crying about it, then? Because they're going to buy all the assets off the, off the little well, people. Uh, capitalism will continue working until a majority of us decide we want a different system. I'm just wondering why a guy like you, and there are many like you, why? has uh, such a drive... Has George, such a drive George, to say the BBC, that the BBC somebody's old mother. Listen. listen, my friend died yesterday. Basim Al Masri. May God have mercy. May God have mercy on his soul. Now he had underlying uh, health problems, but he also had COVID nineteen, and it was the COVID nineteen that killed him. Why do you want to deny that? What, well, look, what do you gain? Cancer, how, does it, George, how does it butter any? In? Yeah. How does it butter any of your parsnips to deny uh, that my friend died of coronavirus nineteen? He didn't die of. He died with. But, wh wh why is that important to you? Why? Because if I'm dying of lung cancer, right, and I have COVID, does not mean that I've died of COVID. It means I've died of lung cancer. It means you died now of COVID. No, it you doesn't. might have died later. That's why it's lung cancer. Well, you didn't listen and if to I'm the doctor. I've had a good you didn't innings. listen to the doctor last week, then. I listened to all doctors. Well, we had one of the country's finest on last week, in which he patiently explained how you're talking out of your rectum. Now get well, out of my sight. Sean is in Stevenage. Let's hear from him. Sean. <laughs> I like George. What? Why do I always get through to you when, when you've just exploded at somebody? <laughs> <laughs> it's just your luck. Because we're here, lad. Because we're here. Go uh, ahead, Sean. Uh, Dr. Ranji, what a star. Yeah, he uh, is, yeah. His comments are spot on. And I'm picking up on his comment about the government are trying to shift blame from their policies over the years, and they're trying to shift blame onto people n not obeying the, the, the lockdown and, and this sort of thing, which we can all have a, a, a point of view on how, how serious that should be, etc. My point is this. When this is all over, I propose that the ministers, the managers, the chief operating officers, the CEOs of all these companies involved in healthcare, and over the decades that have chipped away privatised, closed wards, got rid of beds, and are responsible for not having this PPE here, they should be prosecuted under the Health and Safety at Work Act and embarrassed out of their jobs. They should well, be that, in the dock for uh, it. That's very powerful, and uh, I, I support prosecutions uh, in certain cases, uh, but the first thing we have to demand, and we must get it, is a full, legal, public inquiry into the state of Britain's preparedness or the lack of it for the health emergency and everything should be on the table including Absolutely. including the inquiry's right to recommend prosecution uh, of individuals to demand and receive evidence to Absolutely. access uh, papers this is and that's why I'm so worried about Keir Starmer uh, running to be allowed into a national unity coalition government uh, with uh, Boris Johnson. 
I'm so worried about that because I think it will blunt the edge of the opposition's demand, and it should be their demand for such a wide-ranging uh, public inquiry, Sean. Yeah, he's been put there to blunt anything like this. This is what happens with all these public inquiries. Well, They're I don't know about put put there, Sean. He, he, I mean, he, won, he got 57% of the votes. It was yeah, all these, uh, these ex-Corbynistas that voted for him, people like Ken Livingstone. I don't know, maybe they voted electronically, a bit like in America with the Sanders no, votes no, that no, magically disappear. Well, I, I doubt that, I doubt that. Uh, there's no, I couldn't there's go, no, I don't know anything about there's it. There's now as queer as folk, and, uh, and there was Ken Livingston now bigging up uh, Sir Keir. Listen, Sean, thanks a lot. I'm sorry for the timing uh, of your call. Sylvia's in New Zealand. Let's hear from her. Go ahead, Sylv. Oh, hello, George. Uh, look, I'm ringing from New Zealand. I'm an Australian. Okay. I'm actually ringing about Julian Assange. Yes, and uh, the problem for him with coronavirus, he has a serious lung disease. Uh, it has been requested to the government that he be given a release, a temporary release, so that his life is not under threat. The government has uh, answered by saying that uh, he is not serving a custody sentence, so they have no reason to release him. So he's going to be allowed to rot or, or get a, a, have a terminal disease and die while we all sit back, Australia, uh, Britain sit back, hoping, in my opinion, that he will die and that his problem will be right from the board. That's, I guess, all I have to say about well, it. Well, uh, it's not all. Uh, it's the best call of the night and delivered with great passion and highlighting one of the most grotesque uh, statements I have ever seen from government. The, the meaning of what they said was that Julian cannot be released because he is not a criminal. All the criminals can be released and many have already been, but because Julian has never been convicted, he cannot be released. So if Belmarsh is emptied of all the murderers, terrorists, rapists, grievous bodily harm, mutilators, if it's emptied of all of them, if they get all released because of the danger of them getting coronavirus, Julian will be the last man standing in Belmarsh prison. I think we should because, also remember because today. He isn't, because Sorry. he isn't a criminal. That's right. And just, I think, it needs, people need to be reminded that it's 10 years today since the collateral damage film that, that Julian engineered uh, was shown to the world. And I think it's important for us all to remember that and what it ten means. 10 years, you're right, it's the 10-year... It's the 10-year anniversary of uh, the, uh, the, the video and other uh, information that was released showing the United States committing an actual war crime on camera and murdering men and their children and journalists from Reuters. And yet not a single journalist in Britain in the mainstream media is lifting a finger to help Julian, who exposed the murder of their colleagues. Sylvia, thank you. A wonderful, wonderful call. Uh, Georgie, it says here, in Spalding. Go ahead, Georgie. Hello, George. It's me. It's Georgie. First of all, I want to say thank you for a brilliant show. And thank you. 
Uh, I left the Labour Party yesterday. Blimey, it is really tricky to leave the Labour Party. I, I didn't realise that unless they suspend you or expel you. Um, and um, uh, I've got a big apology to make to you. I have been very slow. I really feel I should have left when Chris Williamson was thrown under the bus for want of a better phrase. Well, you um, know, it's hard to leave, Georgie. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, breaking up is hard to do and all that. Uh, well, I, yes, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't blame you for that. Well, yes, but I've been a bit of a moo about you as well. I, I've sort of said the Workers' Party was some sort of um, <laughs> George Galloway fan club. Well, do you know what? Maybe I, I want to join it now, so... <laughs> OK, well, that's very kind of you, but I can't talk about that here. But it, it's very, no, very... Uh, kind. No, no, not at all. Don't apologise. Uh, uh, I, 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 I hope we get together soon. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. And, you know, I, oh, I've just been such an idiot. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be polite. Um, I think the government is absolutely appalling. I knew that we weren't going to win. I knew Starmer was going to get there. And finally, the penny dropped. And even yesterday morning, I was like, no, no, stay in the party and fight. And it's like... I heard 30 seconds of um, Harmony Hairspray Man and it was like, no, <laughs> get a grip. Do you know what I thought was the best comment I saw today, Georgie? Somebody yes. said uh, that he looks like the kind of actor who would play a prime minister in a Spice Girls video 20 years ago. And I thought that was just absolutely perfect. Got to press on, Georgie. Ryan in Rochdale. Thank you. Ryan in Rochdale. Go ahead, Ryan. Yes, good. Thanks. Go ahead. Perfect. Well, basically, myself, I'm, uh, I'm uh, a Labour Party member, and I've been a, a member of Labour Party since 2016. Um, I cancelled my direct debit today, um, just because, um, like I said, I'm from Rochdale. Um, Jeremy Corbyn um, was probably the first politician in my lifetime to actually represent me and, and my views as a 25-year-old uh, male who's not come from the, you know, the, the best of backgrounds, um, um, actually listening to uh, his vision and the, the, the plan that he had for the country, um, you know, really inspired me. And, you know, I'm not sure where to go from um, this, because I'd have never voted for Tony Blair as long as I had a, a hole in my bottom. Um, and, and Keir Starmer just seems... He's uh, Tony Blair without the laughs, uh, if you ask me. Ryan, I, I, I can't uh, advise you uh, here. Uh, contact me on Twitter. I'll definitely uh, do so. And I feel your pain and I hear it. But again, I've got to clear the lines because here's another legend. You wait ages for a legend and then two turn up on the same show. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Hi. Um, just, um, we haven't got much time. No. I, um, firstly, actually, I did like... Uh, your Hall of Fame is Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, very, very good. Um, no, I'm, I'm really depressed because um, all this news is depressing, but I'm also ever so disappointed because of Keir Starmer's new cabinet, shadow cabinet, unlike Ken Livingstone. He and loves I it. Did, he thinks it's great. Well, I'm so surprised. I did want Richard Bergen to be the deputy. I wanted Rebecca Long-Bailey to be in there. And even Emily Thornbury instead of Lisa Nandy for Foreign Secretary. And Rachel Reese. No, no, no. I'm not happy. Um, well, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I saw the early uh, appointments. And 
It seemed to me uh, the old Blairites being brought back from the black benches and new Blairites that never got the chance to vote for the Iraq war are put in uh, to supplement them. That's how it looked shaping up to me. Do you know, the only thing that I can think of at the moment that is going to give me some pleasure, apart from, I ought to read your book on, yeah. um, not your book, I mean the rugged, flouted philanthropist. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it might be a bit difficult, I don't know. Well, we're um, going to, look, we've run out of time, uh, thanks Norma for the call as always. Uh, we will return to the Ragged Trouser Philanthropist. You can download it for free uh, in certain places. I'd prefer if you bought it, uh, but you can download it for free. Uh, so please do that because we will, as soon as we get the time to do it. I didn't even have the time this evening to introduce someone else to the wall of shame. But I will do next week. He needn't think he's gotten away with it. It's been marvellous uh, for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time in the same place and bring another viewer, another listener with you. Thanks very much and go safely. Stay healthy. And one day, I hope we meet again in the fresh air rather than over the air. <laughs>